listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway. Only on Sputnik Radio. It's war, devastating war between Turkey and Syria in the Idlib province, but spreading into other parts of Syria. And we're closer than you probably imagine to devastating war between Turkey and Russia, which means between NATO and Russia, which means World War III. It doesn't get much more serious than that, does it? Yet you'd be hard find to find any proper analysis of what's going on in the Levant in the so-called mainstream media. Well, you will get it here on the Open University of the Airwaves. It's war in India, in Delhi, the capital city. Hundreds of people have been hacked to death, burnt alive for the crime of being Muslim in India, where Narendra Modi's RSS Hindu fanaticism threatens to burn down the whole country in civil war. It's war against the coronavirus. Are we overreacting? I don't think so. My editor thinks so. So he and I will be joining swords on that one. And it's political war in the Democratic Party in the United States. It's all out to stop Bernie Sanders, even if ineluctably that leads to the re-election of President Donald J. Trump. Fasten your seatbelts. This is a radio show with pictures, and it's going to be a bumpy ride. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. The mother of all talk shows. The only education you can get for free. This is Radio Sputnik. And this is London. And this is a Yorkshire tea mug. Cue for the snowflakes to go crazy. Actually, there's only water in it. Well, thanks to the wonders of the internet, of course, I'm broadcasting to you throughout the entire world. Thanks to SputnikNews.com. We're on FM in the Washington DC area of the United States. 105.5 are the magic numbers there. We're on AM, coast to coast, across the United States of America. But increasingly, most of you are watching, as well as listening, this record-breaking show, the mother of all talk shows. You may well be watching on Facebook, and if you are, please share it with all of your followers, all of your contacts on your Facebook page. You can watch on my own Facebook, that's George Galloway Official, Blue Tick, or you can watch on any one of many of RT's portals, including RT UK News and RT.com. You can watch also, of course, on YouTube, either on my own YouTube channel, again, George Galloway Official, or on RT's many uh, YouTube portals. You can even watch on 
Uh, the Twitter feed at official George Galloway, again, a blue tick. And there are some people watching uh, on Instagram, which is uh, a new-ish thing. One way or another, hundreds of thousands of you are watching and listening to this show this evening. So it's my duty to tell you that it's going to be quite grueling because we are dealing with some of the existential challenges now facing the international community. Let me start in the Levant. And let me start by putting my cards on the table. I have been proud to stand by the Syrian Arab Republic against the dozens, scores of countries who sought to destroy it and put ISIS and Al-Qaeda and their local affiliates in the alphabet soup of Islamist extremism into power in Damascus. I would have been proud of my stand even if we'd lost. I'm even more proud that we have won. Except we haven't won everywhere. The holdouts of ISIS and Al-Qaeda are living under Turkish and American protection in the Idlib province and one or two other scattered outposts. There are maybe 500 or so American forces there who put themselves between the Syrian Arab army and its Russian ally and the final defeat of these head-chopping, heart-eating extremists. I put my cards on the table too that I'm on the side of Russia in this conflict. Not because I work for Russia today, I was on that side before I did work for Russia today. And in any case, I have never taken the view that I have to reflect the political positions of my employers, and RT has never asked me to do so. Uh, but I believe, and here I address those critical of the fact that Russia has not yet gone to all-out war with Turkey, that Russia somehow is too conscious of its geopolitical position, its overarching conflict with the United States, that somehow they're faltering in their duty to their ally, Syria. I'm with Russia. Russia is an international superpower, a multiply nuclear armed superpower, and cannot go lightly into war, all out war, with a member of NATO. And those of you demanding that she should are being at best unrealistic and at worst decidedly ungrateful, because if it wasn't for Russia, the black flags of ISIS would already be flying in Damascus. But there's no point in hiding the fact that it may come to all-out war. It's already all-out war between Syria and Turkey. Right now, this minute, this hour, there is all-out war between Syria and Turkey. And given that Syria's indispensable and close ally is Russia, the possibility of that becoming ineluctably a conflict which draws in Russia against Turkey, then Turkey triggers its NATO provision to bring in the other NATO powers on its side in that conflict. We could be looking at World War III. Now, some of you think that that is an exaggeration, but let's just look at what's happened in the last 24 hours. Turkey launched a devastating missile attack, not on Idlib, 
but on Latakia. Latakia is a very important city in Syria, and it's not the least important because it's full of Russians. It's a Russian naval and air and land base inside the Syrian Arab Republic. Now, we don't know yet because everyone has an interest in playing down what the impact of that attack on Latakia was, but it's highly likely the assets of the Russian Federation and members of the Russian military, the Russian Air Force, the Russian Navy, or the Russian Army Special Forces who are there were damaged in that attack. In the last 24 hours, thugs from the Turkish regime broke into the houses of my colleagues at Sputnik News in Istanbul, dragged them off to a fate uncertain, arrested the editor of Sputnik in Istanbul. These are grave provocations to Russia, which you may recall already lost its ambassador to Turkey uh, to a cowardly assassination from behind in the back of his head whilst opening an art exhibition just a couple of years ago. Seizing Russian assets in Istanbul, seizing journalists who work for one of those assets, namely Sputnik, is a very grave provocation indeed. And Russia, if uh, I'm any judge, and I'm not speaking for Russia, but if I'm any judge, Russia will not take these provocations lying down. And so the real possibility exists of a rattling down fast by the hour of the situation in Syria. Now, at this moment, there is a meeting scheduled for the 5th of March between Erdogan and President Putin. Erdogan's attitude, the rhetoric, and above all, his actions don't indicate to me that a solution is going to be found easily on the 5th of March. And if it isn't found, then this situation may rapidly deteriorate into the most devastating of wars. There's war in India, where the scoundrel Narendra Modi is presiding over exactly the same kind of anti-Muslim pogroms as he presided over when the governor, chief minister of the province of Gujarat, which was such a performance as to have him banned from visiting both the United States and Britain. That was all forgotten about when he became the prime minister of India. It's all about the Benjamins, you know, it's all about the filthy lucre. And India, as a great country, as a great market, as a great center of profit for international companies and their governments, had to be given a pass. Modi had to be allowed to travel in a way that he was not hitherto. And his RSS Hindutva fanatics, based on the German Nazi party. I'm not making that up, neither am I exaggerating. By their own words and actions, 
they have modeled themselves on the brown shirts of Hitlerism are now openly cascading their sectarian hatred all over the capital city of India and it's estimated that 500 Muslims have been set upon, have been burned alive, have been hacked to death and a state of crisis now exists inside India. And I'll be talking later in the show much more about Mr. Modi. It's war on the coronavirus. Some people think that this is all an overreaction. One of them is our editor, who's written a piece which directly contradicts my own view on the issue. That's fine. This is a university, after all. I'll read you his piece, and then I will answer it. One way uh, or another, uh, this crisis, either because it is being overreacted to or because it is an existential threat, especially to people in a certain demographic, poor, old, weak, already in poor health, is potentially devastating, contains within it the possibility of the death of millions of people. Already many thousands are dead and new cases are erupting all over the world with a very serious uh, effect. Now, right at the beginning of this crisis, I talked to you about how China had reacted to it. I praised China for its reaction, and I still praise China for its reaction. But I condemn those that didn't use the time won for them by China's swift and decisive action in order to better prepare their own populations and their own health services for dealing with this disease when it inevitably spread. This virus spreads, well, like a virus. 35 new cases in Britain just today. Hundreds of cases uh, in Italy. Hundreds, maybe thousands of cases in Iran. Thousands of cases in South Korea, none yet in the north of Korea. There are people dying as we speak of the coronavirus. Now, some may say, well, they die of other things. They die of flu in huge numbers every year. But it's my view that the lethality of the coronavirus is much greater than the lethality of ordinary flu. Uh, there's a vaccine that you can take to try and stop yourself getting flu. There is as yet no such vaccine for coronavirus. And the percentage of people who die when they get this coronavirus is higher than those who catch ordinary flu. I'm hoping, although I travel, and I travel, and I'm due to travel to places where they're currently quarantining thousands of people. I'm hoping to avoid it. The only question is, what price are we prepared to pay? What price are Liverpool supporters prepared to pay? What if the Premier League closes down this year's Premier League championship? Because it's already been announced by the World Health Organization that people over 60 should avoid crowds. Well, I'm over 60 and I was in a crowd. I was even in an airplane today, albeit wearing for the first time in my entire life 
a mask over my face. Was I overreacting? You can tell us, by the way, that's our first poll uh, this evening. I'll give you the question in just a minute. And it's war in the Democratic Party in the United States. All pretense has been abandoned. Elizabeth Warren, who's come fourth and fifth in every contest so far, has just openly admitted she's only staying in the race in the hope that it reaches a deadlock brokered convention uh, in the summer and that the grandees of the Democratic Party hand the nomination to her even though she's the fourth or fifth choice of actual Democrats in the country. There's no doubt at all uh, that they're attempting to steal it from Bernie. And uh, Joe Biden, although he won in South Carolina quite decisively, is not likely on Super Tuesday to fare particularly well. Indeed, all the polls suggest uh, that the Super Tuesday result will make Bernie unstoppable unless cheated, that he will have a plurality of the delegates, such a plurality as cannot be defeated, but will not have an overall majority. And if he doesn't, it is the intention of the others to steal it from him. I actually had such a thing. In 1982, I stood to be the Labour candidate in the Rhondda Valley in South Wales. I got more nominations than all of the other candidates put together. So all of the other candidates came together and kept me off the shortlist. So I recognize in a small way what Bernie is facing in the Democratic Party. We'll be talking about Syria. We'll be talking about Turkey. We'll be talking about Russia. We'll be talking about NATO. We'll be talking about the coronavirus. We'll be talking about Modi. We'll be talking about India and the plight of India's Muslims. It's all coming up over the next three hours on the mother of all talk shows. Poll number one, are we overreacting to the coronavirus threat? A, yes. B, no. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. It's going to be a rock and roll show tonight. Stay tuned. Radio Sputnik. We call Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan the most disruptive radio show in America. It's a great show and we have a lot of fun. We come to you live from Washington, D.C. every Monday through Friday morning. What I like best is that we bring in experts from all over the world. From Barcelona, from Egypt, from Seoul, South Korea. From Newark, New Jersey. We try to bring people great guests, great calls from our listeners, and of course, stupid jokes. And we do it with two hosts that have very different viewpoints. Now, here's the thing, Garland. A lot of people would think you and I would just argue. I mean, I'm a Republican Trump supporter. And, of course, I am a progressive Democrat Bernie Sanders supporter. The surprising thing is how much we actually agree on. And you won't be surprised because you're going to find out just how much you agree and just how much you enjoy this show. The mother of all talk shows. Join our faculty of legends, contributors, and callers. Everyone is welcome. Rania Kalek, the journalist, presenter, and writer, uh, has a huge following on social media. 
a great deal of interest in her analysis, both of American politics and politics in the Middle East. And I'm glad to say Rania Kalik joins me now. Rania, thank you very much for coming on the mother of all talk shows. Very nice to meet you at last. I've followed you for years. Yeah, right back at you. It's really good to be on. And of course, I followed you for years as well. And I've always been a fan. Thank you. <laughs> so it's exciting Ra to be on. Rania, uh, let's start in the US. Because I want to ask you uh, something about the foreign policy attitudes of the Democratic Party nominees. Would it be fair to say that Bernie Sanders and Tulsi Gabbard uh, form one poll, if you like, a poll that is decisively against current American foreign policy, particularly Gabbard, though she can afford it because she's not really in the running to win the race. Sanders could do better, but is pretty good by comparison with other candidates in this field or in previous fields. Uh, but that Biden uh, and Warren, for that matter, represent uh, business as usual. And the other also runs uh, are uh, probably creatures of the deep, if you get my uh, drift. <laughs> Would that be a fair characterization? Describe uh, how important or not foreign policy is in this current race. I think that's a really good way of putting it. And yes, that's pretty much true. Of course, like you mentioned, there is a slight difference between Gabbard and Bernie Sanders. I think Gabbard is definitely to the left of Sanders on foreign policy. And also she's made foreign policy and ending wars and ending regime change wars a centerpiece of her campaign. Whereas Bernie's, of course, focused more on the domestic. Um, but of course, he's saying some what would be considered in the U.S. radical things about foreign policy that would really shake up the way things work now. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's unfortunate in many ways that foreign policy doesn't play a larger role in the campaign because we don't hear about it as much. Because, you know, one of the reasons that uh, Hillary Clinton won in 2016, the state's... Uh, that everybody was shocked that Trump won. One of those reasons is, you know, there was a study done that found a correlation between people who voted for Trump in states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Ohio uh, being very, being like areas that uh, have a high, a high disproportionate number of military veterans and being people who are disillusioned by our endless wars. And they saw Hillary Clinton as the more hawkish candidate. So I do think that foreign policy could play a really big role in the election if more of it, if, if it was made into a bigger deal, because there is a significant portion of even the Trump voting public who voted for Trump because he, in many ways, campaigned on disrupting America's endless war foreign policy, even though he didn't follow through on that. Now, uh, since uh, Bernie was fingered uh, as, a, as a Russian asset, a Cuban fan, a Fidel Castro fan, and so on, he has slightly gone into retreat, hasn't he? Uh, instead of saying uh, enough of your games, uh, there's no Russian help in my campaign, uh, and instead of uh, standing up to those accusing him, to me, he's done a bit of a Jeremy Corbyn and started to run away from it. Am I being unfair? 
No, I don't think you're being unfair. You know, I think Bernie Sanders, I have to give him credit in the sense that with the issues of Cuba and Nicaragua and the sort of red baiting he's gotten over that, he has pushed back in what I think is a smart way. However, he's also, at the, at the same time, you could say kind of Russia-gated himself. Um, you know, he's basically agreeing with what we know was a was a big hoax, um, was a big grift, this whole Russiagate scandal that we've been talking about for three years of Russian collusion with Donald Trump that never actually happened. And he's been playing along with it, and he's continued to play along with it, even as it's being used against him by his rivals and by U.S. intelligence agencies. I think it's extremely unwise to continue to play you know, this kind of game of, yeah, you know, I, I'm against the Russians helping me because he's validating uh, a, an entire narrative that is being weaponized against him and his supporters. And it's only going to get worse. And it's really important. You mentioned Jeremy Corbyn because Jeremy Corbyn, when it came to the anti-Semitism, you know, the false anti-Semitism accusations in the UK, he showed his weakness when he you know, didn't push back hard enough against it. And he threw a lot of his supporters who were being accused of it under the bus in many, in many ways. And I fear that that is how Russiagate is going to be used against Bernie Sanders. Well, that's exactly right. And uh, you've obviously followed it. That's exactly what happened. Uh, and we have a saying in, in Glasgow uh, that if you don't run, they can't chase you. Uh, they'll still attack you, but you're not running. At least you're facing them and have a better chance of repelling the attack. Corbyn chose the uh, runaway uh, uh, um, option. And apart from being decidedly unattractive, it doesn't even work. Um, if it were successful, uh, then Bernie might be right in uh, following it. But it's unlikely in the extreme uh, to be successful. Instead of saying, this is a hoax, this whole Russia thing, you know, they're trying to stop you supporting me by waving this uh, imaginary Russian bear uh, in front of the discussion. Uh, but it's all a hoax. And here are the reasons why it's a hoax. Instead of doing that, he has, as it were, as you just put it, uh, bought into it. And uh, it's, mm -hmm. not, it's not going to go away. It's not going to stop uh, just because he has conceded that ground. It doesn't mean they're going to be satisfied. Now, um, let, let's move on to uh, the possibilities on Tuesday. How, do, how does Super Tuesday look to you? I mean, Super Tuesday is looking like a day that Bernie Sanders is going to sweep. Uh, all of the polls are showing him ahead in many of the Super Tuesday states. In some states, he's ahead by double digits. Um, so it's going to be a really, really good day for him. The problem, though, is while we should, it's very exciting to see Bernie, Bernie Sanders doing so well, is the Democratic Party is playing this game where they're running so many candidates in an effort to try and take votes away from Bernie Sanders so that he's never able to meet the threshold of over 50% that's necessary when going to the convention to get the nomination. Um, at the convention, unless you have as a candidate over 50% of the delegates, uh, then it goes to what's called a second ballot when soup, what we call super delegates who are like, uh, you know, unelected uh, delegates that the party picks who are all, of course, you know, uh, pro-corporate and pro-Clinton and pro-Obama and pro-Biden, uh, these people get to decide who the nominee is. And because there's like 10 people in the race, it's impossible for anyone 
to win over 50% of the delegates. So even if Bernie Sanders comes in winning 40%, which would be a huge plurality, the Democratic Party can and I predict will steal the nomination from him. Um, and I think that that is a conversation that, that Sanders and his surrogates and people who support him need to start having now is what are you gonna do when this nomination is stolen from Sanders? You can't just wait until it happens and hope for the best. But if they do that, Rania, they are effectively handing the election to Trump because such grand larceny uh, of, mm -hmm. uh, of democracy is going to so demotivate and demobilize the millions that have mobilized for Bernie Sanders that it's exceedingly unlikely, surely, that they're going to go out in November and vote for, I don't know, Bloomberg or, or Biden. That would be ridiculous. I certainly wouldn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, absolutely. They know this, though. I mean, you see these Democratic Party elites are openly saying it. They're openly talking about how they don't want Sanders to have the nomination, even if it means risking the destruction of their own party. Because at the end of the day, when you think about it, Trump, you know, he might be this obnoxious, you know, buffoon to these people, but he doesn't actually threaten their, their like, their standing. He doesn't actually threaten... Um, their power. Bernie Sanders does. Bernie Sanders actually threatens the power that the people who run the Democratic Party hold. He threatens raising their taxes. It's not something Trump's ever going to do. So a lot of these people would be perfectly happy spending another four years being in the, you know, their fake opposition to Trump. It's been really great for them the last three years. They've actually made tons of money off of playing opposition to Trump. They'd be perfectly fine with doing that for another four years if it means keeping Bernie Sanders away from the White House, because at the end of the day, Bernie Sanders actually means what he's saying. He actually stands for something, and he actually poses a, a, a danger to their bottom line in a uh, way that Trump just does not. Uh, perfectly expressed. Now, uh, I've asked other people this. They all say no. Uh, but it seems to me that if they steal this from Sanders... He literally has nothing to lose by standing as a third-party candidate, as an independent, by mobilizing the mass that he has now organized for a good purpose. He might win, he might not win. Uh, he might break this uh, Clintonite power in the Democratic Party. He might come second. The Democrats might come third. Uh, with their candidate. In other words, he'd be reshaping American politics. Why, why do you think he won't do that? Or do you think he might? I don't think he would. I don't think Bernie Sanders would. I think it's, um, you know, he doesn't want to be remembered because what would happen is he would be remembered as the guy who lost the election to, for the Democrats to Trump. That's, that's the narrative that would get spun in U.S. media. And I don't think that's what Bernie Sanders wants to be remembered for. Um, I also, you know, I think it, Sanders made a mistake in saying that he'll vote or he'll, he'll get behind and get his supporters to get behind whatever Democrat is the nominee. I don't think he should have said that, especially now that it's clear that it might be someone like, like Michael Bloomberg. Um, so the absurd, fact that he said that it? suggests it's that. It's absurd. Yeah. How could Bernie Sanders go out campaigning for Michael Bloomberg and expect his young and, and radical and progressive supporters to do the same? It's a joke. Absolutely. 
absolutely. And, you know, Bloomberg stands against everything Sanders is for. He's a billionaire who's literally buying the Democratic Party and buying his ways into the poll, has bought his way onto the debate stage, has bought influence around the entire country. It, I, I can't imagine Bernie Sanders would... I can't even see Bernie Sanders getting behind Michael Bloomberg. But the fact is that Bernie Sanders had said, has said he will support whoever is the nominee. And I think that was a huge mistake because, I mean, Bernie Sanders clearly is the front runner. He's clearly going to win the plurality of delegates. So his narrative and his talking points moving forward should be, you know, I'm not, you know, let's wait and see who wins first because I want the person who gets the most votes to win. Um, as for his supporters, I don't see, I don't see any possibility of Bernie Sanders supporters getting behind another Democratic candidate, uh, you know, just so the Democrats can win if they steal it from Bernie. That would be a huge slap in the face to all of his supporters and a huge slap in the face to democracy and all of the hard work these people have done, all of the money they've donated in their time they've donated to getting this man elected and to, and to moving this movement of his forward. Now, lastly, Rania, because I've got you here and you know a lot about the Middle East, how will this impact on the uh, American elections if the situation in Syria begins to seriously deteriorate as it has shown signs of doing over the last 24, 48 hours? If, if there's all-out war between a NATO country, Turkey, and Syria, backed by Russia uh, and other allies, that's going to be a, a frightening, very frightening backdrop to the U.S. elections. How is it likely to impact the contest? Um, you know, it's funny. I don't know that it will. It's, it's what's happening. You're right. It's very alarming. It's very dangerous. This escalation between Turkey and Russia and the Syrians. Uh, and it could explode into something even far more dangerous. But at this moment in time, you don't really hear much uh, from the you know, you know U.S. Uh, candidates. You don't hear much from U.S. officials. It's in the last debate. They didn't even talk about foreign policy. It's like it's not on their radar, um, which is often the case in the U.S. So I'm not sure how what's happening in Syria would impact the election necessarily because their foreign policy just hasn't been uh, an issue of debate, which is really, you know, says a lot about um, about the U.S. and its elections. Uh, but that said, you know, I think moving forward with Syria, it'll be interesting to see if it does escalate between Turkey and Russia. They're supposed to be talking sometime this week to try and de-escalate the situation. I don't think, you know, even though Turkey is kind of going nuts right now. I don't think they actually want any sort of war with the Russians. That would be insane on their part. Certainly the Russians wouldn't want that. But we have to wait and see. And for now, in the meantime, the people who suffer are the Syrians. Um, the, you know, the government side in Syria is uh, taking on high casualties. And, you know, Turkey is just wreaking havoc and, and bombing left and right. Uh, and basically fighting on the side of al-Qaeda's former affiliate in Syria. They're fighting on the side of jihadist groups uh, against the Syrian army. And the only person, again, who said anything about this, who's running for president, is Tulsi Gabbard. That's the only person. No one else is talking about it. And I think that's one of the reasons she's be been able to gain such a large and cross like such a large and diverse following um, is because there's such a hunger and an appetite to hear the candidates talk about things like what's happening in Syria. But unfortunately, from the front runners, you're just not going to hear it. Now, has Mike Pence kept you safe from the coronavirus? <laughs> I think Mike Pence is probably praying away the coronavirus. 
<laughs> it is. Uh, it, it was an extraordinary pick by uh, President Trump, a man who, who more or less denies the existence of science, uh, is now in charge I mean, of what might be a really big threat. No, it's extremely alarming, and I actually think that the U.S. Um, the U.S., at least the government, doesn't seem to be prepared at all for it. I don't think they've prepared the public for it. Uh, the, I mean, the, the spread of this virus is coming to the U.S. It's already there. I'm sure thousands of people already have it, and they just don't even know yet. Um, things are going to be shut down. It's going to impact mostly the economy. Uh, the economy is going to be, you know, damaged by this. They're talking about a potential global recession. Um, and so far, you know, it's just... It's really, really alarming to watch this administration deal with this issue when they've cut so much funding. And, you know, also in the U.S., you have a really you have good health care for people who can afford it and you have good health infrastructure. But the fact that so many people can't afford to go to the doctor and so many people don't even get time off work when they're sick, I think is going to pose a serious risk in the U.S., the lack of a social safety net, the lack of paid sick days. People are going to go to work sick and they're going to spread this virus. People are going to, you know, just stay at home or, or just, you know, keep doing what they're doing instead of going to the doctor because they can't afford thousands of dollars in medical bills, um, even if they have health insurance. So I think you're going to see the lack of a social state of the lack of a, a social programs in the U.S. play out in the way the coronavirus outbreak happens in a really, really negative way. Um, and it actually scares me, to be quite honest. Well, what a guest, Rania Kalik. Why have we waited so long to meet each other? Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother Great of all talk shows. Thank you uh, very much uh, indeed. Now, uh, I uh, normally do a short every week for RT. This week I didn't, uh, but I did give a speech at an event which was live streamed by RT. It was the event in London, in Euston, that I talked about last week, which was extremely well attended on the plight of my friend Julian Assange. This is what I said. cannot tremble with indignation at the idea that the man that blew the whistle on the war crimes is in Belmarsh and the war criminals are on the BBC and ITV and raking in millions and millions and millions and millions of pounds. The criminals, the criminals have made it a crime to report on the crimes that they committed. Ponder that. That's now the country that we are living in. Who cannot tremble with indignation? Well, 95% at least of Britain's journalists didn't even show up today to hear the defense's argument. 95% of Britain's broadcasters are not trembling with indignation. If you cannot tremble with indignation at any injustice anywhere, you are not a human being. You have no pulse and you have no soul. And that's the reality of the so-called fourth estate in this country. I spit upon them. This church 
should be bulging with journalists because if they had any intention of actually doing their job, what is happening to Julian Assange is a mortal danger to them. It's a knife at their heart. It's a sword of Damocles hanging over their heads if they ever intended to actually be journalists. But of course the truth is most of them have sold whatever soul they had just for a ribbon to put on their coat, just for a shilling or two. They have abandoned any claim of moral authority and these are the people that lecture us especially election times speaking of which on the principle that it's better late than never I'm glad that Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell have finally found a voice to speak up in favor of Julian Assange And if they'd done so earlier, we might have been further down the road to getting Julian out of Belmarsh. Now, I only have time to make two more quick points. And again, they relate to what the Honourable Craig Murray said. You see, I was there when this extradition treaty was reached. It was concluded behind the backs of Parliament during the summer recess when no member of Parliament could question the treaty which David Blunkett, Tony Blair's Home Secretary, corruptly and secretly concluded with the United States a one-sided extradition treaty the likes of which no free country would ever sign with any other country, where they'd never have to send anybody to us, whatever they've done, even if it's killing a young boy on a motorway because you're driving up the wrong side of the road. You don't have to send anybody to us. But we will send anybody to you without even just cause having to be produced. But when Parliament returned in the autumn, I bearded David Blunkett in the members' lobby and told them all the things that I thought were wrong and dangerous with this extradition treaty. And he said to me, you're worrying unnecessarily because all of the points you're making are taken care of by Article 4.1 of the treaty, which precludes the extradition of people in Britain for political offenses to the United States. And now the judge is telling us that although that's on the face of the treaty, it does not apply. What madness is this? And the second point, Sorry? Windrush. That's another meeting. I'll come back to that. <laughs> the last point then that I have time to make is this. If we allow 
if the British public allows, the British media allows, if the British political class allows, and remember this has to be rubber stamped, signed off by the current Home Secretary, Priti Patel. So public opinion has a role here. He cannot be sent from this country without a politician, an elected politician, a member of an elected government signing the final extradition order. If we allow Julian Assange to be sent for the rest of his life, the rest of his life into the dungeons of the US injustice system, journalism, freedom, freedom of speech, democracy itself will have been murdered in plain sight on our watch. And that's why we are going to fight and fight and fight again to free Julian Assange. Free Julian Assange. Have something to say? Do you disagree with George? Then call us now and give us your view. Now we'll be talking about Julian Assange with the Honorable Craig Murray later in the show. Meanwhile, I've got some breaking news. We're just hearing that the first case of coronavirus is being reported in Scotland tonight. A patient from Tayside, where I'm from as it happens, is now being treated after returning from holiday in Italy. Apparently the football season is in even more grave danger uh, in uh, Italy. They may have to uh, stop all kinds of activities, including, of course, uh, football. Public Health England now say there are 13 cases of the virus in the UK, including a whole family which is now in quarantine. Now we've got a poll running. Are we overreacting to the coronavirus threat? A. Yes. That's got 54%. B, no, that's got 46%. I'm voting no. Tell me what you are. Vote on my Twitter feed, please. Are we overreacting? A, yes. B, uh, no. Now, that was the week. That was. It was on this day in 1950 that top British nuclear scientist Klaus Fuchs was jailed for 14 years at the Old Bailey for spying for the Soviet Union. I told you last week, he makes an appearance as a young man in my debut novel, A Queensway, which is going quite well, thank you very much. You can uh, get it for just 4 99 off my website at uh, info at georgegalloway.com. Fuchs, anyway, aged 38, was a civil servant at Britain's nuclear research laboratory at Harwell in Berkshire. He pleaded guilty to four offences under the Official Secrets Act. Fuchs was German-born. He fled his country to escape Nazi persecution in 1933. He was one of Britain's top atomic scientists. He was also a committed communist and anti-Nazi. He was found guilty of passing secrets to the Soviets between 1942 and 47 when the Soviet Union was actually our ally 
in the fight against fascism, you may well wonder why folks had to pass the information uh, to our ally in the midst of a devastating war and why Winston Churchill wasn't doing the passing on. Ten months after Fuchs was jailed, another Harwell scientist, Professor Bruno Ponte Corvo, went missing. It was later discovered he had fled to the Soviet Union. Fuchs was released in 1959 and went to live in East Germany, where he became deputy director of the Central Institute for Nuclear Research in Rossendorf. Fuchs featured, as I said to you, in my novel Queensway, available in all the best outlets. Actually, it's only available by mail. Uh, no, you can get it on Amazon now. Uh, yeah, you can go to Amazon, but I won't sign it, of course. It'll just be sent to you by Amazon. If you want a signed copy, dedicated and signed, you'll need to do it through my website, info at... Uh, oh, there's the book there. Thank you very much for that, Chris. It's a rather nice-looking book, if I say so myself, and it's being very well-reviewed, including on Amazon. Uh, so if you want a signed copy, contact me. If you want just a copy, go to Amazon. Uh, it was also on this day in 1954. I was born in 1954, as it happens, but that hasn't made it into my script, I don't think. It was also on this day in 1954 that the US produced the biggest ever man-made explosion in the Pacific archipelago of Bikini, part of the Marshall Islands. The hydrogen bomb was up to 1,000 times more powerful than the atomic bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. Just put your head round that. 1,000 times the Hiroshima bomb. It was so violent, it overwhelmed the measuring instruments. One of the atolls was totally vaporized, disappearing into a gigantic mushroom cloud that spread at least 100 miles wide and dropping back to the sea in the form of radioactive fallout. What could possibly uh, go wrong? It was on this day in 1973 that Pink Floyd released their classic album, Dark Side of the Moon. It has since sold over 45 million copies. Today is also the 26th birthday of the pop singer Justin Bieber. Who he? Who's Justin Bieber? It was also the 89th birthday of the former Russian president, Mikhail Gorbachev. A rather sadder event occurred in 1989 on this day with the divorce of the boss, Bruce Springsteen, and his wife, Julianne Phillips. Earlier in this week in history, on February 27th, in 2002, 59 Hindu pilgrims died in a fire on a train in India. The fire happened as the Sabarmati Express, bound for Ahmedabad, Ahmedabad, was pulling out of Godra Station in the western state of Gujarat at approximately 6.30 in the morning. The train was returning hundreds of Hindu activists from a pilgrimage to the disputed holy site of Ayodhya in the northern Indian state of Uttar Pradesh, which is claimed by both Muslims and Hindus. Muslim extremists were suspected. The incident sparked days of rioting in the Gujarat state in which at least a thousand people, most of them Muslims, died. In January 2005, an interim inquiry into the fire led by Supreme Court Judge Umesh Chandra Banerjee found it had not been started by Muslims at all, but had started accidentally. The Hindu nationalist then opposition 
party, the BJP, now the government, called the report politically motivated. It was in this week, on the 28th of February 1986, that the Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palma was shot dead in a street ambush in central Stockholm. His wife was wounded. They were attacked as they were leaving a cinema. Palma was shot twice in the stomach. His wife, Lisbeth, was shot in the back. A drug addict and social outcast, Christer Pettersson, was sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder in July 1989. The verdict immediately became controversial as the court's two judges voted for acquittal, but six lay assessors disagreed. In October 1989, Pettersson was cleared, although several witnesses thought they could place him at the scene of the crime. No motive was ever found for the killing. Pettersson died in September 2004. He was reported to have confessed to the killing before his death. The investigation into Olaf Palma's death remains officially open. A day later, that's the, uh, uh, a day later, a day later, in 1960, a huge earthquake devastated the southern Moroccan city of Agadir, killing thousands. The final death toll was 12,000 people, my goodness. The earthquake was the worst to ever hit Morocco. Modern-day Agadir was rebuilt a mile south of the earthquake epicenter and is now a seaport and seaside resort with a large sandy beach on which I frolicked myself without knowing of that death toll in 1960. On March the 2nd, 1991, in this week, at least 19 people, including Sri Lanka's hardline deputy defense minister, Ranjan Wijatani, Wijaratne, were killed in a car bomb explosion in the capital, Colombo. Suspicion fell on the Tamil Tigers, who were fighting for an independent homeland. The violence continued throughout the 1990s. In April 1991, the former Prime Minister, Rajiv Gandhi, was assassinated when a female Tiger suicide bomber blew herself up in the southern state of Tamil Nadu. Gandhi had become an enemy in 1987, sending Indian peacekeeping forces to Sri Lanka in a disastrous attempt to impose peace on the country. By 2002, it was estimated that the bitter civil war in Sri Lanka had claimed the lives of 65,000 people and left hundreds of thousands homeless. And on March the 3rd in 1974, a Turkish Airlines DC-10 crashed near Paris, killing all 345 people on board. The plane was on a regular flight from Ankara to London via Paris. It came down just minutes after takeoff at 12.35 GMT, scything a mile-long trail through the forest of Ermen, Ermenonville. That was indeed the week that was. Now, are we reacting to the coronavirus? Still 54% say yes, 46% say no. Vote now, uh, please, um, because I'm getting further and better particulars from my editor who continues to claim that we are overreacting. Let's take a couple of calls. Uh, first one, ah, it's Stephen in Hill Heed. He's a legend in his own lunchbox. Go ahead, Stephen. I'll tell you what, George, pick yourself off the, off the floor. 
Because I'm not going to talk any months. I'm not going to talk with William Gass. And he didn't disrespect myself and my family. He's saying he shouldn't be living in Hill Head. So I just feel inappropriate of you. But what I will say is, my employment status is, I am an environmental removalist specialist of toxic and hazardous recyclable waste technician. My good lady is a domestic technician. You have good jobs, and I'm well educated, and I went to university in Glasgow. Which university is a matter of interest? The one in Glasgow, behind the Cannon Street, Woodward University. Okay. Glasgow University, and I did study law. It's any solicitor, a lawyer, or anywhere in Scotland has got to pass accreditation course, which I did, and I can set litigation, civil, criminal, innovation, environmental law, as I'm well educated. How now, come you're such an idiot then? I'm not an idiot, and I'll tell you something else, George, I've listened to what you've said there. We go way back to history, and time began, way back to Bethlehem, there's millions and millions of people going with Israelites all around the world, folks being killed. But the best thing for me now is, is a sorry thing to say, I would just bomb the Middle East crisis. So if I'd enough to Arab, way back to Arafat, Eddie Amin, they're nothing big, big of Bin Laden. What's Eddie Amin got to do with the Middle East? Oh, what? It's all these dictator countries. It's not just the Middle East. I would bomb all these countries. All these countries? All of them. Middle East, Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, I would wipe them off the face of the planet. And I'll tell you what, because the children and the people in there have got no quality of life. They're dictated by a government robbing robbing them blind. They're living in palaces. They've got luxuries beyond belief. The poor people of me get running wars. They're on their televisions looking for money. That these people are lavish in. You're having a laugh, George, and I'll tell you something else, George. If you were away back in the modern time, they would have took you off the street because you're no better than them, George. Uh, no, um, we'll, we'll leave, because of the hour, we'll leave out the fact that Idi Amin was the president of Uganda, which is quite a distance from the Middle East, and we'll concentrate on what you just said. Iraq and Iran were informing for hundreds of years and cosmic wars in the Middle East for, for years, George. We've had enough. Just wipe them out. We've had enough here. It's so, big, big, it's business, well, George. That, so, uh, first of all, you're crying crocodile tears for the plight of the children in these countries, but you want to just, you want to just wipe them out. What do you mean? Put them out of their misery, sort of thing. These children now grow up and they become no better than the political leaders. So, should, are we going to wipe out every no. person in the Middle East from Morocco yes. to Bahrain? 350 million. Is that your, is that your policy, Stephen? There are 30 million from them. We're going back to the Howard because he wanted to dictate. No, we're not going to do that, old job. Because don't blame the children, because they're no, they're no, the government in these countries are no caring about the children just now. Mm. They're killing them anyway. 
you are, uh, you are a dangerous <laughs> lunatic, Stephen. Have you got children? Have you got, Stephen, have you got children? I'm reporting them to the I'm reporting them to the social services because it's a danger to them uh, to be to be living in a household headed by someone that is publicly advocating the wiping out of hundreds of millions of people. I'm going to I'm going to uh, you've already told me about your wife. You said she was a domestic technician. Uh, and you are an environmental technician. I'm going to find out where. I'm going to find out where because you should not be at large. You are a dangerous lunatic. You, you are a threat to the people that you are living with. I said last week that your head was full of mince, but in fact it's filled with bile and poison and you are a danger, a clear and present danger to society. Off you go, don't call again, because if I have anything to do with it, you'll not be in a position to call again. That was Stephen in Hill Head in Glasgow. My God, here's the news with Emily Horn. Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Tune in every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. It's time to double down with Max and Stacy. Yeah, double down. We're talking markets, finance, business, economics, ka-ching, bling, just about everything money-related on Sputnik. It's called Double Down. We're asking, are dead cats bouncing or have fundamentals changed? That's this week on Double Down. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Radio Sputnik News. The former U.S. Vice President Joe Biden has been handed a major boost in race to challenge President Donald Trump in November's election. Biden won decisively in South Carolina's primary, where voters choose which Democrat they want to be the party's candidate. Biden won 48.4 percent of the vote ahead of frontrunner Bernie Sanders on 19.9 percent and billionaire hedge fund manager Tom Steyer on 11.3 percent. South Carolina was the fourth state to vote in the months-long primary season. Another 14 states vote on what has been called Super Tuesday this week. 
By the end of Super Tuesday, it could become much clearer who the nominee will be. Biden had been pining his hopes on a strong result in the southern state after performing poorly in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. He regularly cited his strong support among African Americans, and polls suggest an endorsement by influential black congressman James Clyburn significantly influenced voting patterns. And the United States is now reporting the first death from the new coronavirus. Officials say the patient was a man in his 50s in Washington state and had an underlying health condition. President Trump says more cases were likely, but added that the country was prepared for any circumstance. Australia and Thailand are also reporting their first fatalities from coronavirus. A 78-year-old Australian man died after being infected on the Diamond Princess cruise ship in Japan. Thailand, which has had 42 cases of the virus, said a 35-year-old man who died was also suffering from a fever. Twelve more patients in England have tested positive for coronavirus, taking the total number of UK cases to 35. More than 85,000 coronavirus cases have been reported in 57 countries around the world and almost 3,000 deaths, according to the World Health Organization. The vast majority of infections and deaths are in China, where the virus emerged late last year. Next, Britain's Health Secretary Matt Hancock is defending the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, following bullying claims made by a former top civil servant in her department. Sir Philip Rutnam, the Home Office's most senior official, resigned citing a vicious and orchestrated campaign against him. Labour's Sir Keir Starmer says Ms. Patel must come to Parliament to explain. The Home Secretary has not publicly responded to Sir Philip's claims, but she previously denied she mistreated staff. In his resignation statement, Sir Philip said he received allegations that Priti Patel's conduct towards employees, including swearing, belittling people, making unreasonable and repeated demands. He said he now intended to take legal action against the Home Office on the basis of constructive dismissal. And in what some believe was an attempt to deflect attention from the row over the Home Secretary, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his girlfriend, Carrie Simmons, have announced that they are engaged and expecting a child together. The couple became Downing Street's first unmarried couple when Boris Johnson took over as Prime Minister. Boris is believed to have five other children from two previous marriages. Next, Greece says it stopped nearly 10,000 migrants crossing over the land border from Turkey. Separately, Greek police say at least 500 people on seven boats have reached a number of the Greek islands where camps for migrants are already severely overcrowded. Turkey has vowed to open its doors for migrants to travel to the EU. Turkey's president says the country cannot deal with the amount of people fleeing Syria's civil war. His decision came after at least 33 Turkish soldiers were killed in an airstrike in northern Syria. Turkey is already hosting 3.7 million Syrian refugees, as well as migrants from other countries such as Afghanistan, but had previously stopped them from leaving for Europe under an aid-linked deal with the EU. But Erdogan has accused the European Union of breaking promises made in 2016 when Ankara agreed to help shore up the EU's southwestern border. And finally, Germany's harvest of ice wine, a dessert wine produced from grapes that have frozen while still on the vine, has failed for the first time because the winter has been too warm. None of Germany's 13 wine-growing regions had the necessary temperatures of minus 7 degrees Celsius to produce the wine in 2019. Last year was the second warmest year on record globally, according to the U.S. National Oceans and Air Administration. The amount of ice wine produced has been dropping in recent years. There are warnings that if the warm winter 
winters continue in the next few years, ice wines from German wine regions will soon become even more of a rarity than they already are. Well, that's all for Sputnik News. I'm Emily Horn. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway, only on Sputnik Radio. Are we overreacting to the coronavirus threat? A, yes, B, no. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. More than a thousand of you have so far, and it's uh, pretty close, actually. 54% of you think we are overreacting, and 46% say, as I do, that we are not. So get your uh, votes in. It's difficult not to uh, react, whether overreacting or not, to the scenes that we're seeing, certainly on social media, uh, of mass murder in Delhi. Uh, the videos that I have seen, and wish I hadn't, include watching people literally being burned to death in their homes and people being stoned to death by huge mobs. It is utterly horrific. It is a pogrom which is uh, taking place. But very few people understand <coughs> what it's about, what are the reasons behind it. But my next guest, Nayanima Basu, as the diplomacy editor at The Print in India, in Delhi, surely does. And I'm glad to say she joins us now, Nayanima, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Kindly explain what happened and what the situation is now. Uh, well, as you have, uh, you know, just mentioned, it was uh, literally a fire that was burning in Delhi, right in the capital city at a time when a VVIP was visiting India, uh, U.S. President Donald Trump. And it unfolded from the very first day that he landed in India uh, when he was in the state of Gujarat on Monday that's when, you know, from Monday afternoon, the, the fire started burning. There was this frenzied mob, mob that had, you know, torched houses, shops, vehicles, a petrol pump was, uh, you know, burned down. People were trapped inside their houses when they were when they were sort of burned down. So, uh, you know, it was it was a chaotic, uh, you know, a riot that was going on, and then that continued even the the following day on Tuesday when when President Trump was to meet for a bilateral meeting with uh, with Prime Minister Narendra Modi, and um, we've seen that you know although. Um, it seems that it, it is it is it is a kind of a program. Uh, both the Muslim and the Hindu communities, you know, both uh, members of the community have have suffered it majorly. This is uh, just to just just for your understanding. In the northeastern of Delhi, it had taken place, which is where mostly the working class, uh, you know, whose whose daily livelihood depend on their shops or the kind of you know daily jobs that they do. Uh, it depends on them. So, you know, their, their houses are burned, their shops are burned, they really have nothing to, to go to, and they're right, uh, you know, on the streets with their families. And, 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 and you know, uh, 
if you, if you speak to the people there, if you go to the ground, you will see them telling uh, very clearly that, you know, this has been act of outsiders who came, uh, you know, as a pre-planned, uh, you know, kind of a program that they had to do with the kind of riots that they had carried out. Uh, none of them are ready to say that it happened within the community, within the localities that they live in. And they were very clear of the fact that, you know, these were outsiders who had the plan to carry it out. They did it for good two days uh, while the police, uh, you know, sort of the, the Delhi police uh, just just watched it. Uh, that is not to say that the Delhi police, uh, some of their personals were not hit. But then, uh, you know, the, the, the political leaders, both from the central government and the state government, as well as the police were, you know, sort of handing gloves in, in this situation. Well, yes, that's uh, one of the more disturbing uh, features. Uh, we've all seen, although at least those of us on social media have seen, the police standing by and watching this happening and thus uh, being uh, jointly, severally culpable uh, for the crimes. Who would these outsiders be? Uh, um, somebody must know who they are. What, was the, what were the slogans that they were raising? What was, do you think, the purpose of this program? So the purpose clearly was to divide the society forever and also to bring the danger, um, you know, the fear of riots and communal violence right in the, you know, and strike it right at the heart of the capital city of this big country. Now, Delhi has never really seen uh, commun uh, communal rights to this extent for years now, uh, apart from the Sikh riots that had happened in 1984. But then that the trigger for that was something completely different this time there was no trigger. So uh, these people, these outsiders, they definitely came in acting as they are this uh, Hindu mob. They were chanting, uh, you know, Hindu religious lines and they were going on rampaging uh, any and everyone that 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 came in their way. So uh, and this has been following a pattern. If you if you follow what had happened, uh, you know, earlier in Muzaffar Nagar in Uttar Pradesh, there was this this kind of trend that is going on where the riot has come in. They do kill people, but then killing is not their only motive. Their, their motive is to also loot, uh, to sort of, you know, strip them of their wealth, whatever they have, burn down the houses so that these people are right on the streets. They have nothing to do but then, you know, almost turn beggars or, you know, uh, be at the, at the mercy of the government. So this is a trend that is sort of happening in India. Uh, for the last uh, past two communal riots, one one can see. And definitely the, the, the only purpose is to divide the society forever on the lines, on the religious lines that you are a Hindu and you're a Muslim. And that is how you should be, you know, treating each other. Now, uh, Prime Minister Modi has a history in this regard, of course. He was found to be or thought to be so culpable for uh, similar pogroms in Gujarat that he was banned whilst the chief minister in Gujarat from traveling to Britain, from traveling even to the United States. He is suspect number one, isn't he? Uh, well, a lot of finger is definitely being targeted at him because he has this past track record of, you know, watching things silently, even as the city sort of burns down. And um, which is why a lot of questions are being raised at this point of time. A lot of fingers are being raised at him. So which is why uh, this is the time really for him to come out and state that, you know, he's there for people and, 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 and the fact that he will ensure that this never happens. However, 
All that we've seen in terms of response from him was a, a small little tweet that he had tweeted out, uh, you know, asking for peace, but that's about it. We also saw the Home Minister, uh, Mr. Amit Shah, who's been, uh, who, who, who did not talk about it at all. I mean, today he was addressing a rally in, in another part of the country, in, in, in Kolkata, where he mentioned everything, but but did not mention a word about what had happened. You you lost 42 citizens in this uh, two three days of uh, you know riot, which was uh, you know which was huge considering the the time period within which these people um, lost their lives. And there are more number of bodies that are coming out from the nearby you know, the, the, the drains and the, and the open sewage system that you have, all these bloated bodies are coming up. Nobody knows the real count, actually. So um, this is a situation where the government is probably taking, it, taking things very lightly. Uh, we've seen how the Delhi police is now, uh, you know, put things under control. The Prime Minister Modi also ensured that the National Security Advisor, Ajit Doval, come down to the street and calm people down. But, but it was really a case of uh, too little and too late. Now, uh, what would be, you see, one of the things I was amazed about, uh, about President Trump's visit is that uh, Prime Minister Modi took him to the house of Mr. Gandhi. Uh, but of course, it was the intellectual, ideological antecedents of Modi that murdered uh, Mr. Gandhi. It was these very RSS Hindu fanatics that murdered Mr. Gandhi. And yet there was Modi uh, showing President Trump around his uh, very humble cottage. Uh, that's right, and that is something uh, Prime Minister Modi has been doing with other state, uh, you know, head of states also. He did that when Chinese President Xi Jinping was here. Uh, so that has been a normal practice to to tell the world that, you know, how India practices nonviolence. However, in practice, we've seen things have become uh, hugely different. India is now and that has started um, under, particularly under this government. It's not to say that it has not happened before, but it has definitely sort of accentuated at this point of time. Uh, since coming to power in 2014, we saw how uh, an innocent person like, uh, you know, um, uh, Mr. Akhlak was murdered for something that he was eating um, uh, in his dinner. And there was, it was a mere suspicion that he was, whether he was having mutton or beef, um, which is why, and, and, and for that, he was mob lynched and he was brutally murdered. And we've seen how those uh, murderers were later rewarded. So uh, incidents like this have been happening, uh, which has, uh, you know, resulted in a lot of piled up anger within the Muslim community. Also, it is not just uh, the controversial Citizenship Amendment Act, uh, for which basically, which was the immediate trigger for these riots. Um, how, but then within the Muslim community, there's a lot of uh, pent up anger that is that is sort of simmering at this point of time. You see, for those of us, and I think any sane person uh, who admires and respects India, its size, its scale, its, its uh, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious character. Uh, these are extremely troubling times, aren't they? Because there's the uh, grave deterioration of the situation in Kashmir. Uh, there's uh, increased repression against uh, Sikh people in the Punjab. Uh, some of them seek more uh, home rule. Uh, within India, uh, and now this, 
uh, a new axis or an old axis being uh, reopened, uh, the Hindu-Muslim uh, conflict. It makes you worry about the future of India, doesn't it? Well, it certainly does. And it also uh, concerns a lot of the youth of this country who are now witnessing, um, you know, uh, with, 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 a, with, a, with a following, uh, a growth rate that is, that is falling every single day. Uh, we've seen that the GDP rate, which is the gross domestic product, basically the, the growth rate of India is not growing. There are no jobs happening. No uh, policy reforms are taking place. And you, so you have this bunch of youth who are educated, but they don't have jobs. Uh, so the future is definitely for them is very bleak. And then you see the kind of crackdown that is happening on university students for students who are, uh, you know, who, 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 who probably would have some kind of dissenting voice, they, they are being silenced. So uh, the future of this country really looks bleak if it continues to go in this pattern. Um, a lot of uh, time the government has stated that, that issues like Kashmir and CA, they are internal matters, but even if they are internal, they are creating a lot of internal disturbance, which will be creating a lot of, uh, you know, far-reaching uh, impacts that will have, which probably will take a lot of time for India to sort of get those uh, uh, wounds healed. Also, in terms of internationally, India is not really getting a good name. There are countries, several countries uh, are questioning the kind of measures that this government is take, has taken because this government, remember, came on the promise that it will do economic reforms. It will overhaul the economic situation of the country. It will create jobs. It will boost the country's growth. However, none of uh, that is, is really happening which is why the youth uh, in this country is getting hugely frustrated. Nayanima Basu, thank you very much for providing that uh, vivid description of the problems of incredible India. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us. Are we overreacting on coronavirus? It's moving in the wrong direction for me. Yes, 55%, no, 45%. You can vote on my Twitter feed. Let me take a quick break. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. By any means necessary is your guide to the movement and efforts shaping the world around us from mass incarceration. No longer am I interested in or concerned with prison reform. I am interested only in the eradication of prisons. To the battle between police and water protectors. It was a pretty punishing disregard for the sanctity of human life that unleashing water cannons on peaceful, prayerful water protectors. From efforts to protect the environment. The climate movement is ready to, with plenty of opposition research and force and strength, along with, you know, the right of both science and morality to fight them on this. To the movement for black lives. When I first saw the Michael Brown video, and I saw that it clearly contradicted the narrative put forth uh, by the Ferguson Police Department and by police supporters in general, three words came to mind. Color me shocked. Stay tuned to By Any Means Necessary, five days a week here on Radio Sputnik. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. We are talking 
24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are listening. We give you the most essential out of the endless information space. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. The mother of all talk shows. The only education you can get for free. Only on Sputnik Radio. Sue from Stafford here. I know there are other subjects tonight, but what's your opinion of how the first week of the Julian Assange hearing has gone? Sophie says, will you be talking about the Assange hearing just finished? I sincerely hope so, as it has been massively ignored. Uh, well, not only will I be, I'll be doing so with the master, with Craig Murray, the Honourable Craig Murray, former British ambassador, who has been producing, in my view, uh, the best uh, narrative, the best uh, coverage of that first week. And I'll be doing that at precisely 8.39, so you definitely don't want to miss it. But before that, I need to talk about the developing crisis in Syria, between Syria and Turkey, uh, between the Syrian government and the holdouts of ISIS and Al-Qaeda in the province of Idlib, uh, the crisis between Turkey, a NATO member, and Russia, a legitimate and legal participant in the attempt to wipe out this terrorist threat in Syria, an ally of the Syrian government in Damascus. It's all turned even more ugly and dangerous than it already was. And who better to speak to than Maram Sousli, Syrian girl, as she is famous throughout the world. Maram, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Sorry to have to call on you again so soon after the last time, but the situation on the ground warrants it, I think. Tell us, please, how it looks from your vantage point. Uh, sure thing. Well, we have Turkey, which has been invading Syria for the last couple of years. It's been uh, invading the east and the west of the north of Syria. Um, and at the moment, you know, the Syrian government is trying to take back its territory, specifically Idlib province, which is uh, not only invaded and occupied by Turkey, but also by Al-Qaeda terrorists from all over the world and was home to not only Al-Qaeda leader Al-Jolani, but ISIS leader Al-Baghdadi as well. So uh, Turkey has been trying to stop the Syrian military from taking out these terrorists uh, that have been terrorizing the people of Idlib. Um, and uh, Erdogan seems to think that he's the leader of the new Ottoman Empire. Now, not long ago, in fact, only a few months ago, uh, the Western media were in a lather uh, about the uh, poor Kurds in exactly uh, this place and were damning, condemning President Erdogan for moving his military forces into this area with a view of crushing uh, the aspirations of Kurdish people there to autonomy and so on. The Kurds have been completely forgotten about and the same critics uh, who were condemning Turkey for its invasion are now backing Turkey. Explain. Absolutely. It's interesting to compare, you know, the UK Parliament actually issued a statement uh, condemning Turkey's invasion 
of Syria. Uh, you had Emmanuel Macron making statements as well, uh, asking them to pull out. And the U.S. diplomat to Syria, William Roebuck, he actually said that Turkey's invasion was led by Islamist groups on its payroll. Now, all of that is absolutely true, but they are selective when they choose to say this, when it comes to, you know, uh, the Syrian military trying to take back its territory and defeat al-Qaeda, they don't want, they, they support a Turkish uh, support, they support Turkey invading Syria and supporting al-Qaeda. But if it threatens the oil reserves that the U.S. was trying to occupy in Syria, suddenly it's a problem for the U.K. parliament or, or for the U.S. Because that was, at the end of the day, what it was really all about. Uh, the oil reserves, making sure the Syrian people and the Syrian government don't get to control their own resources, and uh, also to balkanize Syria under sectarian lines, um, to uh, ch choose one ethnicity and make it rule over everybody else, just as the French did uh, during the occupation of Syria um, after World War I. So uh, this is just a repeat of the colonialism um, and uh, Turkey, just because it is threatened by its own Kurdish population, got in the way of that. And that was the only reason suddenly the U.S. and the U.K. remembered that Turkey uh, is supporting Islamists and invading Syria illegally. But they've now forgotten about that. It's quite extraordinary. I know that politicians do it because a scorpion stings because it's a scorpion. Uh, what, is in, what is actually more bemusing is that people who draw a big salary as journalists and commentators and academics uh, who obviously do know better and have some obligation to the public uh, that pays for them, they've all forgotten about it too. Now, the violence was bowling along uh, at a certain level, uh, but it dramatically uh, took an uptick when uh, 33, at least 33 Turkish invaders were killed. Variously, it's said by Syrian army artillery or Russian artillery or Russian airstrikes. Uh, which was it, first of all, and what has been Turkey's response to that? Well, we don't actually know who it was. You know, the Russians and the Turks seem to agree that it was the Syrian military that was, uh, that could take credit for the death of 33 invaders. Um, but it may very well be Russia and they would like to uh, send a message to Turkey sort of under the table by saying it wasn't us, but you know, it was obviously the uh, Russian air force that was flying in the air for most of that time. Um, and there was a lot of targeting of these convoys at that time. So, unfortunately, you know, it seems that at the moment, Russia, well, once this happened, the reason this happened is that we kind of all assumed, or at least I did, in my analysis, I thought that Erdogan is at least somewhat rational, at least somewhat intelligent. Surely he wouldn't stand against Russia and Syria in Idlib and humiliate himself because NATO is not going to back him up. And surely he wouldn't be foolish enough 
to go it alone, even he, given his history. And yet, he's proved us wrong. He is going ahead and escalating um, and acting like a mad dog in the sort of political speak, you know, the, the mad dog doctrine. So he, um, perhaps, you know, Russia also wasn't expecting that from him because since that escalation, you know, he escalated before the 33 soldiers were killed. He sent more and more soldiers into uh, Idlib, which was nothing to do with the agreement that he signed with Russia. The Sohi agreement was uh, signed and Erdogan agreed that he would set up observation posts to make sure there's a continuation of the ceasefire. And during that time, he was supposed to get rid of the Al-Qaeda elements in Idlib. And of course, he didn't do that because it's impossible to do because the vast majority of the insurgents that the Tur Turkey supports in Idlib are Al-Qaeda, so they can't get rid of them. So they were just buying time and in, in, you know, entrenching, and uh, they, they basically, the agreement's thrown out the table because it's been a year and a half, Al-Qaeda is still there, and uh, you know, Erdogan's no longer just observing, he's invading and killing the Syrian uh, soldiers as well. Now, uh, he's, he's not just escalating in Idlib, uh, he, he attacked other targets elsewhere in Syria uh, this week. Tell us about those. Yes, he's been uh, attacked Quares Air Base, which is a very important air base that was uh, survived the entire war. Um, and he uh, attacked it with artillery and destroyed much of it as well. Um, and it's not only Turkey that's been doing this. Uh, Israel has also been supporting Turkey by bombing Damascus in the south of Syria at the same time and even now doing so. And, you know, we shouldn't forget what is Turkey at the end of the day, but a NATO power, an arm of NATO. And uh, Turkey even now uh, produces the boots that the Israeli military wears. So in a sense, Turkey has beaten the shoe of Israel. You know, they are acting as the shoe of Israel. And I it's at odds really with the Turkish people and what they claim to support and Erdogan claims to support Palestinian causes. He invited Ahed Tamimi to speak and yet he is uh, you know, allying himself with Israel, doing trade with them, uh, providing uh, clothing for their military and uh, you know, the, the Turkish ultra-nationalists, they're not even ashamed of this. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, Turkey is just a, a pawn of the empire, the greater empire the uh, NATO and Israel empire. Now, uh, President Putin is meeting with Erdogan on the 5th uh, later this week. What are you expecting to come out of that? Well, that's a very good question. You know, uh, it, it depends also on the position that the Syrian and Iranian governments take. And at the moment, it seems that Syria is going all the way and Iran hopefully will back us up there because uh, we haven't stopped. Uh, the Syrian government continues to shoot down Turkish drones, the same drones that attacked Syrian government soldiers. And uh, we still have our sights on returning our territory every inch. So uh, it's hard to imagine that Russia would be able to, uh, you know, stop the Syrian military from uh, the, the momentum that they have, this really strong momentum that we've seen in the last few weeks, a blitzkrieg, you might say. Um, so the question is, how will Putin talk Erdogan down and make him realize that it's only going to get worse from him, for him from here? Because he's kind of bitten off far more than he can chew. 
and uh, he's trying to juggle these balls in Libya even he's invading Libya uh, he thinks he's the new Sultan of the Ottoman Empire as I said and pretty soon one of these balls are gonna fall and he's gonna end up in a position he couldn't even imagine uh, so uh, hopefully uh, Putin will show a lot of resolve in his meeting with Erdogan at least that's what we want as Syrians now uh, you say that uh, that uh, Erdogan is of course uh, a member or Turkey is a member of NATO and of course that's true but NATO singularly declined his invitation to respond to their article 4 uh, maneuver uh, it uh, issued some words of solidarity but uh, certainly has no present intention anyway of going to war with Russia at the same time uh, you see Erdogan is not much liked in the East and not much liked in the West and doesn't seem to mind that. Uh, his action of opening the gates for thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of refugees uh, from Turkey, Syrian refugees, but also many other refugees that are in Turkey, for which he's already been paid to stop them coming into Europe. The European Union paid him a very large sum of money to keep these refugees in Turkey. He's now opened the gates and these people are streaming towards Greece, which has closed its border. And now there's all hell uh, broken out on the Greek-Turkish uh, border. Uh, what kind of maneuver is that? Who is that supposed to win the hearts and minds of? I think in his mind, he's punishing Europe for not, or NATO for not backing him up as strongly uh, against Russia. Um, Article 4, as you say, as far as I understand, it should be the Turkish homeland that is attacked before NATO acts, and that hasn't happened. So he's the one who is attacking a neighboring country. Um, and of course, realistically, NATO wants to use him to attack Russia. They don't want to put themselves in that position. Turkey's always been like the tip of the sword um, with very little benefit to itself, which, is, which boggles the mind because Erdogan had the opportunity to shift towards the east. Uh, recently, it seemed as though they were, he was getting uh, more positive talks with Russia. They were negotiating peace treaties. He might have uh, received the S-400 air defense system. Um, and that was putting a lot of pressure on the United States to pull out of Syria um, and stop supporting the separatist cause of the, you know, the Kurdistan, which affects Turkey as well. But he seems to have just thrown all of that away and gone back to uh, NATO. Please help me. I want to be a part of Europe, too. You know, just at the end of the day, he drops the east at the pin at the pin and the west. He still continues to beg for their support and love. And they always, as usual, reject him. So, and, you know, Turkey as a whole. So when it comes to the refugees, unfortunately, uh, he's using them as a, a weapon against Europe and to their own detriment, as far as I have heard, uh, he's sending buses of refugees to the Greek border. He's like commissioned buses to take yeah, them yeah. there he's and dump them. He paid for the them. buses. He paid yes, for the buses, but, yeah. And people are getting killed, uh, uh, getting drowning in rivers, uh, you know, in the cold forest. He just sort of dumped them in the woods and said, "On you, off you go." 
to Europe you go. So it's not really to the benefit of the Syrian or other kinds of refugees uh, that he's opened that border. You know, it, it doesn't really help. So um, it's, it's not like he's a humanitarian here. Uh, so yeah, he's trying to punish Europe for uh, not backing his results. And he's painted himself, as you said, in a corner because now the whole world is, is turned against him. Even the uh, Pentagon spokesman came out and said, well, actually, the Al-Qaeda terrorists in Idlib are making life horrible for the people inside Idlib. They are uh, shooting women for adultery. They're, uh, if, if people try to escape, they bomb their buses. The bus convoy in Fua and Kafria killed 200 civilians. You know, they have these religious courts and they control every piece of people's lives and they behead people in the streets and cut off people's arms. I mean, it's been a nightmare. And, uh, you know, it, it, even though the U.S. State Department has openly said this, you have the other wing of the U.S., the, the Pentagon, make, you know, making this statement that's obviously true, that, Al that Turkey and NATO are supporting Al-Qaeda. So uh, it, it shows that he is, Erdogan is not popular, nor in, in the East or the West, as you said. The only seem, people that seem to like him right now is, are Israelis. Yeah, that'll not go far. Uh, Madam Sosli, thank you very much again for joining us. And uh, if this story continues to develop, we may need to call on you again. Thanks very much for joining us. I think I'll take a quick break and then it's the Honourable Craig Murray on Julian Assange. Radio Sputnik. every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. Want to talk? Get in touch with us at radio at sputniknews.com. We are talking 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are listening. We give you the most essential out of the endless information space. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. Radio Sputnik, we speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We give you the most essential information out there. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. Are we overreacting to coronavirus? Yes. 54% down one. No, 46% up one. That's more like it. You can vote on my Twitter feed. 1,500 or so of you have already done so. Uh, my old friend Alex McGuigan in Belfast says, I agree 100% with your geopolitical analysis and how incendiary a situation we're facing in the Levant. Erdogan's neo-Ottomanism is a recipe for major conflict not least due to Turkey's NATO alliances. Take care, my friend. The currently shadow-banned 
Alex McGuigan. Sorry to hear that, Alex. I'm a bit kind of shadow banned at the moment myself. The old algorithms have been busy. Uh, Dave says Russia and Syria should have attacked ISIS and the Islamists months ago instead of allowing the USA and Turkey in coordination with their ISIS and Islamist allies to regroup and come up with another connivance. Thanks for reading my email, says Dave. Uh, Gagan says, if people just stayed at home for a few weeks and got things delivered to their homes, I think it would be an easy solution, short-term pain, long-term benefit. But how do you stay at home? You, you've got to go to work. You've got to travel. Your kids have got to go to school. People have got to go to university. People have got to go where there are crowds. And amongst those crowds are people who have been to some of the hot spots. My own children uh, were recently in South Korea, which is a red hot spot. And also in the north of Italy, another red hot spot. I'm uh, at the moment scheduled to go elsewhere uh, where uh, people are now being quarantined in the thousands. Uh, Dave says, you're wrong, George. Your editor is right. The coronavirus has a 2% mortality rate. That means 98% of people who are infected by it survive. I've got to say, you're falling for the mainstream media hysteria. Thanks for reading my email. Uh, and uh, this one uh, from John. Uh, are we living in a period of breakdown? Looks like we're heading for a recession. Germany is on the verge of a massive recession. Uh, America is starting to shed its illusions of being even a liberal democracy, with the Democrats now outwardly saying they'd rather lose to Trump by stealing the nomination from Sanders. The UK government is introducing more and more surveillance, etc. Uh, quite a long uh, uh, email that, John. Sorry, I don't have time to read it all because I'm going to uh, have to turn to the master, uh, Craig Murray. He'll be up in just a, a minute. Let me take a call while I'm waiting for him. Mohammed is in California. Go ahead, Mohammed. Hello, George. How are you? By the grace of God, I'm good. Thank you. God bless you. I'm a big fan, George. I follow your uh, your work everywhere. Thank you, sir. George, I had a quick question regarding um, your stance with uh, Bernie Sanders. I know you're, you're a supporter of him, as am I. I plan on voting for him in the primaries this, uh, this year. But I had a few uh, concerns and reservations regarding his foreign policy stances. And as I respect your opinion highly, I wanted to uh, understand your opinion on some of his foreign policy stances, specifically his uh, Bernie Sanders stance against the, the BDS movement, his uh, legitimization of Israel while labeling certain groups that fight them as uh, terrorist organizations, um, his often hawkish stance against Syria, calling for the removal of President Assad with, uh, without really the respect of Syria's sovereignty or uh, uh, democratic elections. He's uh, previously demonized the Iranian government while sometimes seemingly forgetting that millions of the U.S. spends millions spending uh, every year to foment unrest in the country. These are some of the concerns I have with Bernie Sanders' foreign policies. And I wanted to get your specific opinion on this, your, your take on this. Well, uh, every one of those things that you said it has the benefit of being true. Uh, and, of course, uh, in supporting Sanders, 
Uh, I'm not giving him uh, a blank check or, uh, or a blanket uh, endorsement. Every one of those uh, weaknesses that you have identified in his uh, script uh, is accurate. Uh, but of course, we're not electing me or you uh, as the President of the United States. We are electing from amongst a, uh, a spectrum of people uh, which is strictly limited. Somebody running on your take on these things, or mine, uh, would not uh, be doing even as well as Tulsi Gabbard, uh, who's doing really well. Uh, but she's better looking than you and me. She speaks extremely well. And she's a soldier in the United States Army. And she's a congressperson uh, in the United States uh, Congress. So she has a lot more advantages that we don't have. Uh, and she is currently polling around 2% uh, in the uh, Democratic Party to be the nominee. Uh, so we have to approach this question from a standpoint of realism. He is uh, a Zionist. He's Jewish. He supports Zionism. He supports the uh, existence of the state of Israel. All of that is true. He also called Netanyahu a racist extremist. Uh, he also has condemned in the most forthright terms uh, the crimes uh, in recent years carried out by the Netanyahu regime uh, in Israel. And he's currently being denounced almost at the moment I'm speaking in a long, long indictment by APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee who are identifying Bernie Sanders as a clear and present danger to the special relationship between the United States and Israel. In other words, America electing the first ever Jewish president would be a disaster, according to the Israel lobby in the United States. He's the most dangerous man in America, says APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. So they clearly regard his lack of support for contemporary Israeli crimes as being a, a possibly existential threat to them, certainly to the special relationship between the U.S. and Israel. So we have to balance uh, these two things, Mohammed. It's true uh, that he speaks extremely rudely uh, about the president of Syria. It's true that he is disrespectful towards Syria's national sovereignty, uh, but he's also against what Donald Trump is actually doing in Syria. He uh, was extremely rude about the president of Iraq, uh, but he was almost the only voice in the American Senate to oppose the American invasion and occupation uh, of Iraq. It's true that he's reacting uh, to the Russiagate issue in, I believe, uh, a way which will damage himself and the wrong way to react to it. Uh, but he did go to the Soviet Union for his honeymoon. And he is against war with Russia. He's for the treaty proscribing the development of more and more dangerous thermonuclear weapons, unrestrained 
by the INF Treaty and so on. It's true he was rude about Iran, but he supports uh, the Iran nuclear deal, opposes the sanctions that are literally killing uh, the people of uh, Iran. So he, he, he is not you and he's not me, but he is against the defense budget, which is greater than the next seven countries in the world put together. He's against war after war after war uh, throughout the world. He opposed the Vietnam War, uh, unlike uh, Joe Biden, for example, and unlike Donald Trump, though he did his very best to avoid it. So what I say, Mohammed, is I support Bernie Sanders as the best candidate amongst those who can conceivably be elected as the president of the United States. Last word to you, Mohammed. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly with what you said, uh, George, and uh, that's that's also the reason why I'm voting for uh, for Bernie Sanders this this coming election. And God willing, maybe one day we'll see a uh, a president somewhere along the lines of uh, of you, George. One day, hopefully. Well, uh, thank you, thank you. But I think it'd be a, a hell of a big step forward if we just got Bernie. Sanders in Mohammed in California. Thank you for the call. We've got the Honorable Craig Murray, former British ambassador, on the line on the Julian Assange uh, story. Ambassador Murray, thanks for joining us again. Uh, you've been uh, extremely active uh, from early morning, queuing outside the church at uh, the uh, court, rather, at, uh, I call it a fort, actually, uh, down in uh, Woolwich, and then dashing home uh, to write it up, then dashing to meetings to talk about it. Give us your overview of how the week was. Um, just horrible and absolutely terrible. The, uh, the place is, as you say, it's like a fort. It's a, a kind of maximum security court inside a prison. It's designed especially to keep people out so nobody can see what's happening in there. The conditions in which Julian are kept are just awful. He's continually being strip searched and cavity searched and harassed. He's not allowed to have any papers, uh, to keep his papers uh, in order to prepare for the next day's court hearing. In the court hearing himself, he's kept in a, an armored glass box where he can't communicate instructions to his lawyers and can't properly hear what's going on. Uh, you've got a magistrate who doesn't pretend to be listening to the defense and makes no you know, secret, really, of their bias. Um, and you've got a prosecution, which is making the astonishing case that he's being extradited under the US-UK extradition treaty. But, but clause four of that treaty, which says you cannot be extradited for political offenses, but that clause does not apply because the treaty is not law. But the treaty is the basis of the extradition. Uh, so, you know, the, the arguments really are quite nonsensical. Um, and it, no, all in all, you know, and to see Julian, you know, not looking well, uh, looking distracted, looking like it's hard for him to concentrate, kept in terrible conditions, it, it was an example of the crushing power of the state. And um, you know, I, I'm still a bit shell-shocked by all of it, to be quite honest. 
No, uh, the whole thing is Kafkaesque, but let's uh, go back to the first of the uh, atrocities that you've just adumbrated there. How is it legal for someone who is in a trial not to be allowed to read papers, to take them back to their prison cell and go through them in preparation for the next day's hearing? How is that even legal? It, it, it's not legal. I mean, it can't possibly be legal. Um, but the difficulty is that um, the magistrate refuses to intervene. She says that she has no jurisdiction within the prison, so she can't tell the prison service uh, that he has uh, to be able to read his papers. Strangely enough, not only the defence, but the prosecution uh, said to her that it's quite normal for her to, to even if she can't issue instructions, quite normal for her to request the prison to let him have his papers, but she refused to do so. I'm not, I have no doubt whatsoever she's being instructed by the, the state as to what to do. But, you know, you've got situations where everyone who can intervene has intervened about his conditions. The United Nations have formally protested about his conditions. The Red Cross have protested. There have been behind-the-scenes protests from, you know, uh, major world figures. Um, and the British government simply ignores it all. Uh, it, it really is um, absolutely astonishing. And what's legal and what's illegal doesn't seem to matter. The state is going to do what it wants to do anyway. Well, she even said she had no jurisdiction, never mind in the prison, in the court. Uh, she could not allow Julian to come out of the armoured bulletproof glass box in which he's sitting and join his lawyers. Uh, so as better to communicate with them. And this was in defiance not just of Julian's counsel, but of the prosecution counsel. That's very true. Um, and in the end, the, uh, uh, the defence counsel produced all kinds of examples uh, of the law and, and all kinds of previous examples of people who were allowed out of the dock and to sit with their lawyers. And incidentally, Clive Ponting contacted me to say during his trial, he was allowed uh, out of the dock and to sit with his lawyer. And uh, Julian, of course, has been through terrible traumatic time and, and thus has psychiatric conditions. And um, the defence uh, quoted the regulations that say it is normal for prisons with psychiatric conditions to be allowed to sit next uh, to their lawyer. That is the guidance for what you ought to do. Uh, but still, it's not allowed because I think it's, it's, it's a deliberate part of the torture process, if you like. You know, it, it's a deliberate part of crushing this man and trying, in effect, to kill him within jail. But the court has a psychiatric report before it, which says that they, uh, from uh, the official psychiatrist saying that he will not survive uh, if they extradite him, that they, they believe he will succeed in killing himself. Um, uh, and so I, I, I think it's, it's a deliberate instrument of torture, in effect, this glass box. How extraordinary. I'm going to let that just sink in for a, a moment. Um, the state's actions are explicable because of the kind of state that we have. A scorpion stings because it's a scorpion. What is less easy to understand and even more despicable is that 
Julian's fellow publishers, journalists, and broadcasters are either completely ignoring all of this, even though they must be reading your estimable blog, but they're pretending they don't know it, or in some cases, they are actively participating in the crucifixion of Julian Assange. How do you account for that? It's astonishing, isn't it? Um, it? It seems that they think if they take part in this, then it won't happen to them, you know, because they'll be seen as being on the side of the state and therefore uh, helping, uh, uh, helping the crucifixion of a dissident publisher is not a threat to other publishers if they're not dissidents. Uh, uh, that's the only way I can see their, their psychology. And the, the ability of them to shut it out and simply pretend it is not happening when it's happening before the eyes of the world is, is astonishing. Uh, and, and also, you know, this has got much more broadcast time in continental Europe than it has in the UK. Mm. You know, every day I've been doing interviews with mainstream news media from Germany and France and Denmark and Switzerland, and, you know, who seem genuinely concerned. Uh, here in the UK, it, it's simply been shut out. What happens next, Craig? Well, there's an adjournment now until the, uh, the middle of May. Then we get into the actual evidence. And that's quite interesting, because the very first evidence that's going to be called is going to be the evidence of that he was spied on in the embassy, and in particular that his privileged legal conversations uh, with his lawyers were spied on, and that the, uh, the tapes of all that were sent to the CIA, to the American government, which is trying to extradite him. And that in itself, in any normal legal proceedings, would have the proceedings chucked out instantly. You know, if, if attorney-client privilege is being broken by state spying, by the state that's bringing the charges, uh, there's no genuine judge uh, in the UK or the US who, who would contemplate that for the moment. But that is itself sufficient grounds to dismiss it. But um, I'm not expecting that to happen, but the evidence is going to be very interesting. Now, uh, well, maybe they're going for a mistrial. I mean, one reading uh, I appreciate it's perverse, uh, of the sheer scale of the abusive process to date, uh, could be so that the judge will say, we can't actually proceed with this because it has been thoroughly corrupted as a process. Well, I think that's something any reasonable judge would have, would have already said before now, uh, because of course the judge doesn't seem need to, if, if the judge conducting the trial is going to declare a mistrial, they don't usually get to the end of the process to do it. Um, you do that probably by now. Um, I mean, what, what people are saying to me is it seems very, very likely on all this that on appeal, it would be one. You know, at the High Court or the Supreme Court, judges aren't going to put up with this kind of thing. And I think that's probably true. I think that is probably true. But I don't think Julian would survive the two to three years in jail it would take to get that far. Why is he in Belmarsh, Craig? Oh, goodness. I mean, that's the fundamental question. Somebody who published, and what he published was the truth. We must always remember this. He didn't publish any lies. You know, all he published was the truth about government crimes and corruption. And he's being treated at least 
on a level with, and arguably he's being treated worse than the most hardened terrorist murderers. Uh, he's being treated as the most dangerous and violent man uh, in the country, uh, you know, which very, very plainly he's not. He is he, not involved in any violence whatsoever. So this, this determination, it's a determination to kill him. Uh, I have no doubt about that. And it's because he threatened the powers that be. He, he was responsible for the, the biggest ever uh, revelation of, 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 of the, the ill and, and evil that government can do. Uh, and in, he's viewed by those who control the state as a, as a, as a major threat to them. Um, but to see the machine acting against him in this way and to see the, the apathy with which that's um, greeted by uh, the vast majority uh, of other journalists um, is very scary and very disillusioning. A butterfly crushed on a wheel, but at least... That particular butterfly, Mick Jagger, uh, had uh, a lot of coverage, including from, uh, uh, from uh, Mr. Rhys Mogg, who, who penned those words as a, as a Times uh, editorial. Uh, we both know Julian well, and we're both brokenhearted at his Calvary. Uh, anything that people can do that you can say now, what can people do who are watching this, listening to it, just as upset as us, what should they do? I think we, you know, we need to get active. I do think people should, I, I, I know it's a, a cliche, but people should contact their members of parliament. Uh, as, you, as you know, members of parliament are actually quite sensitive to what's in their, their email box or their post mail. And if they get 30 or 40 people uh, contacting them on a subject, they start to think it might be something on, on which hundreds of their voters might might base their vote. So, so I do think making plain that people care is important. Um, when we uh, get back again, I'd like to see more people outside the prison, more people protesting to, to drive home the fact that this is a, a political um, uh, charge, you know, that this, uh, and, and that this is a a political persecution. People don't turn up. Hundreds of people don't turn up from all over the world outside outside prison courts uh, for ordinary criminals. And Julian is not an ordinary criminal. Um, and as well, um, you know, organise put pressure on journalists and put pressure on the media. Honourable Craig Murray, thank you very much for that update. I'm sure we'll be asking for your advice again. Uh, when this case returns in May. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Uh, I'm six minutes late with the news, so just time to tell you that the poll is closed. 55% of you think we are overreacting to the coronavirus threat. 45% of you agree with me that we ain't overreacting. In fact, we're underreacting. 1,544 of you voted. I lost. I'm not used to it. Let's take a break and have the news with Emily Horn. Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Tune in every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism where we talk about the big economic issues of the week 
from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. It's time to double down with Max and Stacy. Yeah, double down. We're talking markets, finance, business, economics, ka-ching, bling, just about everything money-related on Sputnik. It's called Double Down. We're asking, are dead cats bouncing or have fundamentals changed? That's this week on Double Down. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Radio Sputnik News. The former U.S. Vice President Joe Biden has been handed a major boost in race to challenge President Donald Trump in November's election. Biden won decisively in South Carolina's primary, where voters choose which Democrat they want to be the party's candidate. Biden won 48.4 percent of the vote ahead of frontrunner Bernie Sanders on 19.9 percent and billionaire hedge fund manager Tom Steyer on 11.3 percent. South Carolina was the fourth state to vote in the months-long primary season. Another 14 states vote on what has been called Super Tuesday this week. By the end of Super Tuesday, it could become much clearer who the nominee will be. Biden had been pining his hopes on a strong result in the southern state after performing poorly in Iowa, New Hampshire and Nevada. He regularly cited his strong support among African Americans and polls suggest an endorsement by influential black congressman James Clyburn, significantly influenced voting patterns. And the United States is now reporting the first death from the new coronavirus. Officials say the patient was a man in his 50s in Washington state and had an underlying health condition. President Trump says more cases were likely, but added that the country was prepared for any circumstance. Australia and Thailand are also reporting their first fatalities from coronavirus. A 78-year-old Australian man died after being infected on the Diamond Princess cruise ship in Japan. Thailand, which has had 42 cases of the virus, said a 35-year-old man who died was also suffering from a fever. Twelve more patients in England have tested positive for coronavirus, taking the total number of UK cases to 35. More than 85,000 coronavirus cases have been reported in 57 countries around the world and almost 3,000 deaths, according to the World Health Organization. The vast majority of infections and deaths are in China, where the virus emerged late last year. Next, Britain's Health Secretary Matt Hancock is defending the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, following bullying claims made by a former top civil servant in her department. Sir Philip Rutnam, the Home Office's most senior official, resigned citing a vicious and orchestrated campaign against him. Labour's Sir Keir Starmer says Ms. Patel must come to Parliament to explain. The Home Secretary has not publicly responded to Sir Philip's claims, but she previously denied she mistreated staff. In his resignation statement, Sir Philip said he received allegations that Priti Patel's conduct towards employees, including swearing, belittling people, making unreasonable and repeated demands. He said he now intended to take legal action against the Home Office on the basis of constructive dismissal. 
And in what some believe was an attempt to deflect attention from the row over the Home Secretary, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his girlfriend Carrie Simmons have announced that they are engaged and expecting a child together. The couple became Downing Street's first unmarried couple when Boris Johnson took over as Prime Minister. Boris is believed to have five other children from two previous marriages. Next, Greece says it stopped nearly 10,000 migrants crossing over the land border from Turkey. Separately, Greek police say at least 500 people on seven boats have reached a number of the Greek islands where camps for migrants are already severely overcrowded. Turkey has vowed to open its doors for migrants to travel to the EU. Turkey's president says the country cannot deal with the amount of people fleeing Syria's civil war. His decision came after at least 33 Turkish soldiers were killed in an airstrike in northern Syria. Turkey is already hosting 3.7 million Syrian refugees, as well as migrants from other countries such as Afghanistan, but had previously stopped them from leaving for Europe under an aid-linked deal with the EU. But Erdogan has accused the European Union of breaking promises made in 2016 when Ankara agreed to help shore up the EU's southwestern border. And finally, Germany's harvest of ice wine, a dessert wine produced from grapes that have frozen while still on the vine, has failed for the first time because the winter has been too warm. None of Germany's 13 wine-growing regions had the necessary temperatures of minus 7 degrees Celsius to produce the wine in 2019. Last year was the second warmest year on record globally, according to the U.S. National Oceans and Air Administration. The amount of ice wine produced has been dropping in recent years. There are warnings that if the warm winter continue in the next few years, ice wines from German wine regions will soon become even more of a rarity than they already are. Well, that's all for Sputnik News. I'm Emily Horn. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway, only on Sputnik Radio. Coronavirus began in China, of course. Uh, China moved mountains, literally. It built hospitals in days. It moved mountains. It uh, disinfected entire cities. It stopped people moving around. It took draconian centrally controlled, centrally planned action and appears to have stopped the rise of the outbreak. But of course, Chinese people travel all over the world and in any case, there's no reason necessarily to believe that this virus only ever existed in China. It's now uh, affecting people who've never been in China, nor had contact with anyone who has ever been in China. And so there's every reason to believe that as the health authorities are now beginning to realize that we are in my view, at least not over prepared or overreacting, but under prepared and under reacting. And that the difference between China's approach and our approach is in microcosm, the difference between their form of society and ours. After all, if you were in the United States and thought you just might have the coronavirus, you'd do anything other than present 
Because as soon as you present at a doctor, at a hospital, as someone who might have the coronavirus, you're looking down the barrel of a medical bill of many thousands of dollars, maybe much more even than that. But enough from me, I'm merely an enthusiastic amateur. Let's talk to our old friend, Dr. Ranjit Brar, right on the front line in scrubs, a man who's an expert, not just on health and the parlous state of the British Health Service, but an expert on China too. Uh, Dr. Ranjit, thanks for joining us again. George, thanks very much for having me with you. Deal with this dichotomy that we've been struggling with tonight. Roughly half the people think we're overreacting and roughly half the people think we're not overreacting. Where do you stand and what should our approach be? Thanks, George. It's a, it's a complex question, I think. And um, I haven't listened to your whole show. I'm sorry I've been working, but I've just caught the last few minutes of the debate. Um, and it's an area where, if you like, the medical, the political and the economic are closely intersecting. And that makes it a difficult question to comment on with a lot of competing interests. In terms of the medical, you know, coronaviruses are not new. Uh, we've had multiple outbreaks in the past. So it is a very, I mean, a, a virus is not actually a, a complete life form. It requires, it, it basically uh, is an infective particle which is able to hijack the reproductive mechanism, the protein synthetic mechanism of a cell in order to cause its symptoms. Uh, and it does seem that this uh, coronavirus is more infective than the SARS virus. But on the other hand, its effects are a lot less lethal. Um, the actual number of cases that we've seen around the world, uh, around 80,000, 95% of those within China, in mainly in the Wuhan area. And I, and I agree with you, your last comments I heard, but China have done an amazing job. I was talking to a colleague of mine who's a virologist. Uh, he was astounded at the job. Uh, he's a British uh, virologist. He was astounded at how well China had done managing the outbreak. Firstly, to actually recognize that it's a new pathogen that you're dealing with is not um, a straightforward and regular everyday occurrence. An unusual cluster of respiratory infections was seen. And China is extremely advanced both in its medical care and its um, immunology and of course it's genetic. So it was able to sequence this virus very quickly. So relatively simple, single-stranded RNA virus. And they have actually already come up with um, a, a medicine that they're testing, an antiviral medicine that was already on their shelf that they found to be effective against this. And it seems to be having good results with a high safety profile. It's very early days to say. In terms of the spread outside China, it's a complex thing as well. So it's clearly it is spreading, and that's reflective of many things. It's reflective of the fact that we used to think of Britain as the workshop of the world. Really now China is the workshop of the world and is intimately connected in terms of its transport links and economic infrastructure with the entire world. That's, of course, put it to a degree at loggerheads with the United States. And that plays out in a number of ways, military, political, diplomatic, and economic. Um, but it's certainly true that you know, we should be cautious of this virus. Um, overall, is it a pandemic? It's interesting to see that the World Health Organization haven't declared it a pandemic because actually the numbers, there's no strict definition of the numbers necessary to declare a pandemic. 
Um, it's quite possible to declare it a cluster or a localized outbreak. There have been very few cases outside around the world. What do we know about its mortality and how dangerous it is? Well, the picture is, as I'm sure you noted in your program, is emerging so that it's a, quite a dangerous illness for an 80-year-old to get, but someone who's younger than nine probably is asymptomatic, no one's died, and, you know, it's for them, so really almost trivial. Where it becomes dangerous is if a large enough number of people in the population, in the world's population, get it, then even a very small mortality can result in a large number of deaths and a large strain on health infrastructure. Um, stop me if I'm going on too long, George. Not at all. Uh, it's a, a dazzling, brilliant uh, explanation. Let's move on, though, to that point. Uh, I made the point, maybe some might think it a cheap point, but if I were in the United States, I'd be loath to present uh, with the symptoms of the coronavirus uh, because I couldn't afford it. I can't afford to take time off work because nobody will pay me if I'm not at work and I can't afford the medical bills. I'm just an ordinary Joe in the United States. Uh, I, I, I'd, I'd be scared, very scared uh, of getting it. In Britain, where we have a health service, at least for the moment, uh, I'd be worried as to whether the hard-pressed NHS, uh, where trolley medicine is becoming a norm in some places, would be able to cope with a big outbreak here. I think that's an entirely reasonable point. So when we look at systems, of course, I mean, there's an undercurrent, a subversive undercurrent in the way that this outbreak is portrayed in the media. No credit whatsoever has been given to China for their incredible efforts. I think they've moved heaven and earth very successfully. Um, they themselves have pointed out that a certain doctor who initially raised alarm seems to have initially met with some resistance. That's not unusual in any system. And in fact, they've subsequently uh, looked at some anti-corruption officials to ensure that no suppression of this valuable information was ever taken place. But there's a kind of grey propaganda, what used to be re referred to in the old Soviet days. We used to have an information research department. George, George Orwell was actually a member of that, who were systematically placing negative propaganda stories against the Soviet Union in our media. I mean, they haven't gone on a long way. That, that's a kind of modern existing phenomenon. But of course, Soviet Union is no longer the enemy. China is a major enemy of our country, and they're constantly going on about the subversive command and control economy and trying to say in some way that this is the fault of China. Of course, you know, diseases are as old as humanity, you know, but there's a brilliant book. I don't know if you've read it or any of your viewers have read it. I recommend it to you if you haven't. It's called Guns, Germs and Steel by Jared Diamond. And it talks about the clash of old civilizations with new civilizations and the way in which infection actually and resistance to infection grew up with densely populated human civilization. So it's as old as uh, really human beings inhabiting cities living closely with livestock and other animals and vermin and parasites and the transmission of disease backwards and forwards between the two is an age-old phenomenon. We've seen many very significant outbreaks of health problems. Um, I suppose flu is one that, that is important to compare it with, and we can come back to that. And certainly we could talk about the world flu pandemic of 1918, which is, uh, which is an interesting uh, um, analogy. But just coming back to the point about how does one prepare, you know, care for your working class population, and the overwhelming population of every country is working class. In Britain, yes, we have an NHS. I mean, in terms of preparedness, you know, the NHS is not well prepared 
for major strains upon it because we're operating at absolutely maximal capacity. Part of the PFI initiative and the constant drive to um, really privatize the NHS, which has come to a very advanced stage now with Simon Stevens, who is formerly actually chief executive of uh, one of the chief executives of the International Department of United Health, a huge insurance company, uh, has come back and now he's actually running our NHS. I don't know how many of your viewers will be aware of that. And there's a constant drive towards privatization and the private finance initiative, which redeveloped our hospitals using capital essentially from banks and corporate finance, meant not only is it hugely draining of our resources in terms of the mortgage repayments, uh, you know, we borrowed 12 billion and we're having to repay 1992 billion. So it's a massive, uh, it's eightfold we're having to pay back what we borrowed. So it's, a, it's not been a saving, it's been a massive drain on the current financial balance, which is why every single trust in the country is actually in debt now. And that debt is being used to drive further austerity measures. And despite Boris having come to, you know, in smashing the red wall and promising to do something about the, um, uh, the underfunding of the NHS is saying that Brexit is going to materially benefit the NHS. He is, himself came out only a few weeks ago saying, well, actually, you know, this chap Simon Stevens has, you know, too much operational control and Boris finds himself unable to affect the financial management of the NHS. Part of that PFI was a constant reduction. As they redeveloped every hospital, there was a reduction in the number of beds in every hospital. So that actually, while we used to have cottage hospitals, where we used to have a certain amount of redundant capacity, I can tell you that every hospital in the land basically operates at full stretch all the time. It's almost like hot bedding, you know? Like as soon as one patient is out, quickly clean the bed and a new one comes in. It's not good conditions for controlling infection. It's not good conditions if there's any kind of extra stress. And it's a constant concern that I've had throughout my career for the last five or 10 years, certainly, of not being able to get elective surgical patients into beds because emergencies are filling those beds already. So the NHS is at a real straining point, and I don't want to panic monger, but everyone who, who works within the NHS will recognize that picture that I'm painting. That's a fact that no politician can speak away. So were there to be a, I mean, currently I do have to say there's like 30 cases. I think there's now been one death of a British man from a cruise ship. You can't call that a pandemic compared to almost any other disease that we're talking about. And we mustn't forget that flu, when we talk about just straightforward influenza, affects hundreds of millions of people a year and probably from respiratory deaths alone causes 500,000 deaths worldwide and total deaths, probably a million deaths worldwide. So absolutely dwarfs currently the SARS pandemic. And it's in that respect that I think a lot of your viewers will say there's an overreaction the way it's being portrayed. But in terms of our preparedness to deal with any kind of extra strain on the NHS, I agree with you. There, there are real issues with the ability of the NHS currently to cope. Dr. Ranjit, thank you for that really brilliant tour de force on the political, medical and economic issues that are thrown up by uh, this a potential crisis, not yet a pandemic, uh, but of course uh, there are other countries which started out with 30 cases and now they have hundreds of cases and one or two of them uh, thousands uh, of cases. Is there anything that we should be doing that we can tell our viewers and listeners tonight? I was alarmed as a man over 60 who goes to football matches 
uh, to be told that people over 60 should avoid big crowds. Uh, maybe I should go and watch Manchester City. There's never much of a crowd there. Uh, but uh, I support someone else. Uh, and uh, I'm, am I'm amongst big crowds uh, all the time. Should we be avoiding uh, crowds? Should football be being cancelled and so on? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think the high-risk areas are, you know, the London tube is going to be a hotspot should we come to a generalised infection. It's a hotspot for getting flu. I mean, uh, people in London who use the tube will recognise that they catch flu on the tube. They're used to people sneezing in the densely packed trains in the morning. And, of course, you know, this is a, a, a virus which um, basically is spread by, by airborne droplets from coughing and sneezing. Um, I won't go into why that is, but essentially there's an ACE, uh, angiotensin-converting enzyme receptor on it, which uh, localizes um, and makes it uh, able to penetrate the endothelial lining uh, of the lung. So it's, it, it is a, and it is an extremely infectious agent. There's no question. So you know, if it were to become generalized, yes, it's reasonable to avoid crowds. Right now, I guess airline travel would be, you know, a place where. You're likely to catch it. I myself and my wife, my, my wife's from China, we were due to go on a, a long break over Easter and see her family in Hong Kong. She has elderly relatives. We, despite thinking that the chances of catching it overall are low given the numbers, are concerned we don't want to be the ones who are spreading that vector to an elderly population. Well, we'll be safe, our children will be safe. That's precisely the danger in that. At the moment, we can't be absolutely sure how far this was spread because the majority of young and middle-aged people who catch it will be almost totally asymptomatic. So there are dangers of spreading it. Yes, the danger is in the crowd. But I must emphasize, at the moment, there are relatively small numbers. And to, compared to other health emergencies, you know, I think China's done a fantastic job of limiting it. It is obviously up to other countries to intercede. And I understand why, you know, uh, Gabriel Jesus, uh, Dr. Gabriel Jesus, the leader of the World Health Organization would be particularly worried about less developed countries because where they don't have the ability to test, they don't have many medical facilities, um, and the population are more, more immunosuppressed, they're at higher risk, and probably, you know, probably that's the reason that there were massive pandemics. For example, the world influenza outbreak in 1918 killed between 50 and 100 million people. But it that killed, of course it came killed, on the uh, It killed more people than the war. It did, but of course it came on the heels of the war, which meant that soldiers were moving all over the world. Soldiers and the general population were malnourished and therefore immunosuppressed. And for that reason, it, you know, it was, a, it was a consequence not just of the pathogen itself, but the complex way in which that interacts with society. And when society is poor and depressed, and you know, there's a world crisis now, and they may say that the economic crisis was over. In fact, they're saying it's being reignited and saying that this virus is the outbreak. If one virus is enough to precipitate world economic crisis, it tells you something about the precarious state of the economy. So it's a slightly more complex phenomenon than that. But of course, um, these things can spread rapidly around the world. Well, look, I'll tell you what. Um, I've listened to Mike Hancock today, and I've listened to Dr. Ranjit Bra, and I wish the latter was the health secretary, but don't comment on that because I don't want to put you in any trouble. Thanks very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Let's take a break.
Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Tune in every Thursday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker for the regular segment called Veterans for Peace, where we focus on the contemporary issues of war and peace that affect veterans, their families, the country, and the world as a whole. Veterans for Peace President Jerry Condon joins the show every Thursday. Hear about this and more every Thursday right here on Radio Sputnik. We are above all the latest developments, and we don't take any sides. Radio Sputnik. The Untold. The mother of all talk shows. With George Galloway. The world is our classroom. And you're welcome to sit in and join the seminar. The Hall of Fame. That's what we're dealing with now. It was 120 years ago last week that the British Labour Party was formed. Although the way it's going, I wouldn't bank on it being around for another 120 years. The founder, and therefore the latest inductee into the mother of all talk shows, Hall of Fame, is James Keir Hardy, born into unimaginable poverty, but who fought to create not just a better life for himself, but for all working people. He was born on August the 15th, day before me, in 1856 in a two-room cottage on the western edge of Newhouse, a small town close to Motherwell in Scotland. His mother, Mary Keir, was a domestic servant. His stepfather, David Hardy, was a ship's carpenter. He went to work at the age of seven as a message boy for a shipping company. Although deprived of schooling, his parents spent evenings teaching him to read and write. Ponder that. The founder of the Labour Party, Keir Hardy, left school at seven and joined the workforce as a message boy. He had no schooling. When the great lockout of Clydeside shipyard workers took place and the men, they were all men, including his stepfather, were sent home for six months, needless to say, without pay, with their main source of income terminated, the family was forced to sell all their possessions to pay for food with Mr. Hardy and Little Keir's meagre earnings, the only remaining source of income for the household. One sibling took ill and died in miserable conditions, making matters worse. Young Keir lost his job for turning up late on two occasions. At the age of 10 years old, Keir Hardy the founder of the Labour Party, went to work in the coal mines as a trapper at 10. His job was opening and closing a door for a 10-hour shift in order to maintain the air supply for the miners at the coal face. Hardy also began to attend night school. Keir, as he was now called, longed for a life outside the coal mines. So encouraged by his mother, learned to read and write shorthand. He also began to associate with the temperance union and to preach in his local church, all of which helped him to learn the art of public speaking. Before long, Keir Hardy was looked to by other miners as a logical chairman for their meetings and spokesman for their grievances. Mine owners, however, began to see him as an agitator and he and two younger brothers were blacklisted from working 
in the local mining industry. But if the owners thought that blacklisting would stop them, they were sorely wrong. At 23 years old, Keir Hardy moved seamlessly from the mines to union organisation. In May 1879, Scottish mine owners combined to force a reduction in wages, which had the effect of spurring the demand for trade unionisation. Hardy was chosen by the miners as their delegate to a national conference of miners in Glasgow. He was appointed miners' agent in August 1879, and his new career as a trade union organiser was launched. Keir Hardy was active in the wave of strikes which swept the country in 1880, including a general strike of the mines in Lanarkshire, which lasted for six weeks over the summer of 1880. However, the union had no money, and he and others had to gather food from striking families, from local, for striking families from local merchants upon promise of future payment. A soup kitchen was kept running in Keir Hardy's home during the course of the strike, manned by his new wife, Lily. To make ends meet, Hardy turned to journalism, starting to write for the local newspaper. He joined the Liberal Association, in which he was active, and he also continued his temperance work for younger viewers and listeners. He was campaigning against the evil of drink. Despite his early support for the Liberal Party, Keir Hardy became disillusioned by Gladstone's economic policies, which he, see, he saw would not benefit the working class. So he stood for Parliament as an independent Labour candidate in 1888. But he finished last. Remember that. He finished last. Undaunted, he was instrumental in a public meeting in Glasgow, which founded the Scottish Labour Party with Keir Hardy becoming its first secretary. In 1892, he stood for Parliament again, this time in London, in West Ham South, and he defeated the Conservative candidate. On taking his seat, Keir Hardy refused to wear the parliamentary uniform of black frock coat, black silk top hat, and starched wing collar the other working-class MPs, Liberals, wore. Instead, he wore a plain tweed suit, a red tie, and a deerstalker hat. In Parliament, Keir Hardy advocated a graduated income tax, free schooling, pensions, the abolition of the House of Lords, and for women's right to vote, and, I should add, for proportional representation. However, Keir Hardy was no liberal on immigration. He argued for a complete ban According to him, the migrant workers in the mining industry were driving standards down. In 1900, Keir Hardy organized a meeting of various trade unions and socialist groups, and they agreed to form the LRC, the Labour Representation Committee, which shortly became the Labour Party. Later that same year, Hardy, standing for Labour, was elected to the constituency of Martha Tidville in the South Wales Valley, which he would represent for the remainder of his life. Hardy spent his remaining years campaigning for votes for women. His secretary, Margaret Simmons Travers, 
was the first woman to speak in the Houses of Parliament when she tricked her way in in October 1908, interrupting a debate and shouting, votes for women. He also campaigned for self-rule for India and an end to segregation in South Africa. A pacifist, Hardy was appalled by the First World War and tried to organize a general strike against it. Finally, after a series of strokes, he died in hospital in Glasgow at noon on the 26th of September, 1915. He was just 59. Keir Starmer, the leading candidate to lead Labour, was named after Hardy. I'm pretty sure the original would not have been much impressed. You see, the greatness of Keir Hardy is that he understood uh, that uh, the Liberal Party could not represent the interests of the working people because it already represented the interests of the employers, the industrialists, the bourgeoisie. He knew that it was not possible for a party to represent both of these classes at the same time because their class interests were antithetical. They were opposite to each other. The interests of the employer was to get the worker to, vote for, to work for longer for less. The interests of the worker was to work for less for more. And that twain could never meet. It was the greatness of Keir Hardy that he understood that the interests of the working class were entire and separate from the other classes in society. And that every country needs a Labour Party, a party that will stand up for the workers. And I'm going to tell you this. If you think Keir Starmer intends to lead the Labour Party into standing up for the workers against the interests of those who exploit them, who cheat them, then you're living in a fool's paradise. I believe that the Labour Party is on its way to extinction as a party of the working class. And a very large number of working class people have already so concluded. They've so concluded by their votes. They have voted with their feet. They have left the Labour Party. They have never joined it when in previous generations their parents and grandparents did. There are working class people right now beyond the red wall that have voted for Boris Johnson. So betrayed did they feel by the Labour Party. And that was the Labour Party as was under the titular leadership, at least, of Jeremy Corbyn. Although the truth is, by the end, Jeremy Corbyn was in office, but not in power. Keir Starmer was in power, and he's about to be elected, probably by a landslide victory, as the leader of the Labour Party. And over the next couple of years, Keir Hardy, his namesake, will be turning in his grave as Keir Starmer completes the project of final severance, the final separation.
of the Labour Party from the working class in Britain. The wall of shame has a new name on it this evening. It's Narendra Modri, about whom we have spoken tonight. The butcher of Gujarat has become the butcher of Delhi. The man who was banned from traveling here and to the United States because of his role in the mass murder of Muslims in Gujarat has done it again. But not only the murder of Muslims in Delhi, but the murder of Sikhs in the Punjab, the murder of Christians for eating beef, the murder of the people in occupied Kashmir. There is now a critical mass of populations repressed and murdered by the fanatics of the Hindutva RSS and its political party, the BJP. The India that we knew, the India that many of us loved, the India of Mr. Gandhi and Mr. Nehru, the India of Mrs. Gandhi and Rajiv Gandhi is not the India of today. The India of today is one of hideous, sectarian, religious fanaticism, which is in danger of burning itself down. The bonfires of the poor Muslims on the outskirts of Delhi, poor, living in shacks, those bonfires may spread a bushfire, a conflagration that burns down the India we once knew. Let's take Ian in Hounslow. Go ahead, Ian. Hello, uh, George. Nice to hear um, from you. Yeah, good to speak to you. Now, you were talking about Syria yeah. earlier in the show. Mm. I don't know whether you've noticed, but the, the mainstream neoliberal media has gone into overdrive on propaganda against the uh, Syrian Arab army uh, as it's on the verge of basically purging the republic of these Islamists. And they're claiming they're Syrian rebels. But you and I, George, no, they're not even Syrians. They're from no, everywhere they're, else they're from except China. Syria. They're from, they're from everywhere except Syria. Exactly. They're from, they're from Xinjiang in China. They're from uh, uh, Chechnya and Russia. They're from Saudi Arabia. <laughs> They're from Wales and England, from Stockholm and Paris. Hardly any of them are Syrian. They don't even speak Arabic. The only Syrians are those being held hostage, being used as human shields against the Syrian Arab army of liberation. You're absolutely correct. And every journalist writing it knows it, Ian. They know this. They know they're not rebels. They know they're ISIS and Al-Qaeda. They know they're not Syrian. They're Chinese and Russian. Pakistani. Bengali. From everywhere except Syria. They know now, that. They're deliberately now, deceiving their viewers and their some, readers. Deliberately. Now some very august and senior people 
have talked about the Duma hoax, and that's what they've called it. And I'm talking about the Syrian BBC producer, Riami Delati, Lord West, the former First Sea Lord, a retired UK Major General, John Shaw, Colonel Wilkinson, US Armed Forces Chief of Staff for Powell, David Stockman, the economic advisor to Reagan, Sir Peter Ford, the UK ambassador for Syria. All say it's a hoax, but it's not being reported. And don't don't forget the redoubtable, the dreadnought, Peter Hitchens in the uh, of the Daily Mail. He's fought a single-handed battle for the truth about Duma, and his scars are plenty for having done it. And now he's being vindicated, Ian. I need to press on. There's a poll. You've only got 15 minutes. I need you to vote right now. What will Boris Johnson's next child be called? A. Winston. I'd vote for that one. If it's a boy, it'll be Winston. Trust me. 52%. B. Margaret. If it's a girl, it'll be Margaret. 19%. Or C. Your choice. So... I need you to vote now, quickly, on my Twitter feed. What will Boris Johnson's child be called? A, Winston. B, Margaret. C, your choice. Let me know. And let me take a call now from Stuart in Kansas. Go ahead, Stuart. Uh, howdy. So, George, I, I was look a big fan, by the way. Thank I you. was looking on uh, the Twitter trends in the United States in the, this morning when I first woke up, and the first trend I saw was dropout Bernie. And I understand he didn't win South Carolina, you know, but and I kept looking into it. There was no like major incident, you know. This was trending for no reason. Nothing really provoked this. And then I was looking around, and I article I forgot where. And by, by the way, dropout Bernie is still uh, in the United States, the seventh, the seventh trending thing. Wow. But I was seeing how the Michael Bloomberg campaign has been hiring uh, people on social media. To, to post in favor of him. And, and it just got me thinking, do you, do you think the, the billionaires in the United States and the capitalist class can be uh, manipulating these uh, I, I'm, social media? I'm absolutely media? certain he has paid thousands of people to punt him, uh, influencers they're called, uh, on social media. I, I, I think there is no trick to which uh, Mr. Bloomberg will not stoop. Uh, and moreover, if Bernie is the nominee for the Democratic Party, I think that Bloomberg will run against him as an independent candidate, as a third party uh, candidate. So uh, get used to that one uh, also. Stuart, uh, nobody expected Bernie to win South Carolina. I certainly didn't expect Joe Biden to get 49% of the vote. I'm suspicious of it, I've got to tell you. But the Super uh, well, Tuesday polls for Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, uh, Bernie uh, is miles ahead of everyone else. So why would there be a trending hashtag, drop out Bernie? He's going to win. Exactly. He's going to win lock, stock and battle on Tuesday. And like, listen, George, like in Kansas, my job or my old job is I used to register people to vote. And a lot of those people were older Hispanic people, older black people. And, and lots of these older black voters, they may not be Bernie voters. Most old voters aren't in the United States. But there's, but I, I, at least me personally, when I was registering older black voters here in Kansas, and in, in my city we have a pretty large black population, especially in the neighborhoods 
that I've I worked been there. In. I've given a speech in Kansas City. Uh, I, I'm in uh, Wichita, not Kansas City. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, Wichita. You're the, but, Wichita um, you're the Wichita lineman. Okay, uh, Stuart, yeah, don't Barry be a stranger. Sanders, not Bernie don't, Sanders. Do, do, don't be a stranger. Uh, do call back. I need to take more calls. I've only got 10 minutes. Tess is in Wales. Go ahead, Tess. Hi, George. How are you doing? Good, thank um, you. Nice to hear from you. What would you like to say? Uh, yeah, just saying as your last call, uh, listening to Rania earlier on. This is all quite depressing. It seems to me that we can see Bernie getting cheated a mile off, right? So if that happens, the, 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 world, is, the world is crazy. I can't cope. We've got Assange. We've, we've got India. We've got everything that's going on. How, what, how, do we do, how do we deal with this? What do we do? How do we make this better? Well, uh, I wish I knew. I wish I could. Uh, <laughs> the first thing we have to do is properly analyze uh, everything that you uh, are seeing and talking about to properly characterize what's at work here, who's at work here, yeah. in whose interests things are happening. So you have to, the ontology is important, the proper characterization of all these forces that are working in the world. We need to build an alternative media to the media that is misleading people. And you're part of that. Uh, this show is part of that. Everyone watching or listening to this show is part of that. You've got to win new people to come in here and watch it so that they too can understand things better. We need to spread our analysis, spread our agitation, spread our education. We need more conscious people if we're going to find our way out of this. Thanks for that, Tess. Breaking news. We just heard from Sputnik News that two missiles have fired, been fired in Baghdad in the last few minutes, and they appear to have come down on the U.S. Embassy in the city. What should Boris Johnson's child be called? Uh, he'll possibly call it once a month. Paul Cox says Don Johnson. Tess Delaney calls it distraction. Baron Ortega calls it Krang the Merciless. Ben's HD calls it Blair. Mr. Bojangles. Winston, girl or boy, end debt slavery, says Trump, Churchill and Trump. And David Frivolny says, I'd rather not answer as perhaps the offspring of some American-born prime minister is not my business. However, given his infatuation with Churchill, it would not shock me to hear Winston's name is the one he chooses. I remember the deaths caused by Churchill in the First World War says David. Uh, I think it will be Winston uh, if, he, if he wins. <laughs> if it's a boy, I'm getting tired. Uh, and I think it will be Margaret uh, if it's a girl, brilliantly chosen, whoever did that poll. What will Boris Johnson's child be called? A, Winston. B, Margaret. C, your choice. Let's hear from Alex in California. Go ahead, Alex. Hi. Hi. My name is Alex. I am from... California, yep. and I am a member of the Party of Communists USA, and I'm here to speak about one thing I've been critical of when it comes to your show is I'm kind of critical of your support of Bernie Sanders. Not I'm not a neoliberal. I am not a neoliberal. I am 
critical of Sanders because of his support for the Democratic Party and his support for a party that is clearly anti-working class. Like, you're lucky, like, British, like, like you are lucky that you have a party in England that even, that at least claims to support the working class. Like, the Democrats don't even claim to support the working class. Yeah, go on. So that is my comment. Yeah, you're, and, well, best of luck in finding a different show uh, that is more to your uh, party of communist taste. Uh, that's all I've got to say to you because I've got more sensible people to talk to. Uh, and she's a legend. It's Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. Um, I, I actually am just going to say very quickly that I've learned so much from your programs and I'm 82 on Wednesday. Wow, 82. Wow. <laughs> and thank you for the inclusion and respect you've given me over the last few years. It's made me feel part of the community and followed by my interesting Twitter account and my supporters. So really, I want to say I'm happy to feel that Moats doesn't... There's no ageism in Moats, and that's it today. Definitely not, although we'd no idea you were 82. You sound far too uh, you sprightly. Know, I, hope, I, hope, I hope I'm as sprightly as you when I'm <laughs> 82. Uh, how's your husband, by the way? He's all right, yes, he's all right. He's, he's up and um, about. Is he taking you out for your 82nd? Yeah, yeah, we're going to a very smart restaurant for lunch, and then my sons are coming over for tea, and, uh, oh, yes, we're, we, 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 we can't walk very well. I've got to stop coughing, George. But we should take a taxi and uh, enjoy ourselves. And you're not still, you're fagash flow. Uh, on yeah. uh, on Twitter, I know because I follow you. Are you still smoking? Yeah, sixty-six years now. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> the doctors will. The doctors will. It's bad. Are, it's uh, really bad. Yeah, yeah. And you're eighty-two. You've been smoking for sixty-six years, and you're one of the brightest contributors to the mother of all talk shows, which is a university. Uh, so all I can say on behalf, I think, of all of the listeners and all of the viewers is to wish you the happiest of birthdays uh, this week for your 82nd and to wish you many happy returns. And Thanks. you must tell me that you will call the show every Sunday because we need your wisdom. <laughs> we absolutely oh, no, need, no, no. We need your yeah. wisdom and a little bit of humor that you bring to the show. Uh, also, everyone, follow her. Thank you. Follow Thank her. You follow much. Norma on Twitter. Fagash Flow. It's a great name. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant name. Uh, just a time for a couple uh, of reads. Uh, I see Erdogan is again weaponizing migrants, threatening the EU with another wave. This after the EU paid him six billion euros to house them on the border. Erdogan is an Islamist and wants a new. Ottoman Empire, that's from Tony. Charlene in West Belfast says, I can't understand how these British and American liberal lovies still support Erdogan's proxies like HTS and Daesh. I, like so many others, have seen the horrific videos they produce where they torture and behead Syrian soldiers and civilians, even eating the entrails 
of these slain human beings. Great show as always. Thank you, Charlene, for a beautiful message. Uh, Zona, on the other hand, says, any chance Galloway can get some opposing views on his laughably called university instead of crawling up Putin's propaganda arse where no reasonable person takes seriously. Thanks for watching, Zona. Uh, George, it's a strain of the flu. Take care. Don't panic, says Kevin. And Dave from South Wales says, you've made some great speeches in the past, but your speech on Tuesday night in defense of Julian Assange was nothing short of brilliant. Well done. Shame on our so-called mainstream media for their silence, or should I say cowardice. That's from Dave in South Wales. Dave, thank you very much for that. It's always uh, better if you speak from the heart. Julian Assange is a very important person to me. I believe he's a world historic figure. He will be remembered long after the rats, vermin that have tried to destroy him are forgotten. Julian Assange is the most important political prisoner on the planet. And I will give, if necessary, my last breath to calling out those unjustly imprisoning him. It's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, tell another listener, another viewer. Come back next week, same time.